This is exactly right. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! This is That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. Welcome. My name is Lisa Traeger. Hi. Hi. My name is Kara Clank. Hi, Lisa. How's it going? As you know, our podcast is about Law & Order SVU. We recap an episode, talk about the true crime it's based on, and interview somebody that has to do with the episode. And yeah, today we've got another hot one for you. I'm excited. I'm very excited. Okay, so I did put a poll up on our Instagram. Um, mm-hmm. Just a fun game. Just Oscar nominees. Who would you like on the show? Someone wrote in with an amazing idea that Javier Bardem should be Olivia Benson's love interest. I saw that, and I just think that's honestly too hot. I don't know. I think that might be too hot for television. Like, I can't believe you. I, I'm being betrayed by my my co-host and friend. And no, I think I'm it's like, a, I think it's such a good idea that it's almost too hot is what I'm saying. I love the idea. What it's if, just so oh, hot. Like you might masturbate in the middle of the street. Like, I, I don't know what I would do. Like, yeah, I might have to like stop the show. It, Maybe like, it can that be, that an would be such a gorgeous couple together. Yeah. And then like riding off on their police horses down the street to the river. I don't know. And, he's and then like, that's the end. And he's, yeah, and he's like, I have a place in New York. I obviously also have a place in Madrid or Barcelona. We go there, you know. Noah will learn Spanish. It's it's I mean, I I like all of it. I know. And I and he's with Penelope. There's a lot of couples nominated for Oscars this year. Yes. We have yes. Jesse Plummins and Kristen Kirsten Dunst, but also Penelope Cruz is nominated with Javier Bardem. And maybe there's even more in there, but a lot of love mm-hmm. on the red carpet. So I'm kind of excited. I was reading this is Kirsten Dunst's first nomination. Yeah, it's sexism. It's kind of the Regina George That's rule of it all, where it's like young female performances. Trixie Mattel always talks about Buffy with Sarah Michelle Geller, where it's like these performances that are incredible are underlooked because it's not what we consider great acting or something, even though it is. Yeah, I just she's been around since she was like 10. I just really thought she had had a nomination. For some yeah. reason, I thought she was nominated as a kid for like interview with a vampire, but I guess not. No, the youngest person was Anna Paquin. Do you remember her? She won mm-hmm. for the that some piano movie. I don't know. It was literally called the piano. Well, because then I also think of the pianist, which haunts me to this day. Yeah. Wait. With Adrian it, Brody. Yeah, that's Adrian Brody. The piano is what it's called. It's Jane Campion. That's like yes, um, and Holly Jane Hunter. Campion's been nominated so much. Yes. No, I'm telling you, the piano is separate. But then yes. I always think of the pianist. And I don't like to because it ruined my life. Yeah, I was just making sure I wasn't talking about the pianist. So <laughs> no. I was trying to se- separate them. I was like, how dare you? I know the difference between <laughs> no, no, piano no. and pianist. I was like, what, the minute the board, the piano came out of my mouth, I was like, oh, wait, was it the pianist? Well, we were also in a group chat about a new show coming out called Life and Beth. And then our friend goes, yeah, it's a play on life after death. Like, I didn't understand yeah. it. And I was about to go <laughs> into the phone. Like, I was about to buy a plane ticket, fly to New York and punch her in the face while she's at work. I was like, how dare you? <laughs> But I am an immigrant. I do, you know, I do mess up a lot, but I was like, yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Death. But <laughs> it looked weird. I just like, I've never seen a trailer with, usually they give you like, and then this happens, but there was none of that. I was like, is this a diary? It was just a lot of snippets in like the life of the main character. 
Yeah. Maybe we're just used to a different sort of trailer. Yeah. I've been debating starting Euphoria. What's your feeling on I'm that? I'm starting it. Let's do that. Okay. I feel like Euphoria's hit a fever pitch. And I'm yes. like, okay, I used to think, oh, it's for youngs and I don't need to watch it. But now I'm like, okay, I really think I need to watch it. Everyone's fucking talking about it constantly. No, I never thought for youngs i wasn't in the mood it's kind of like may i destroy or i may destroy where it's like i don't know if i'm in a place where i can watch something this heavy yeah but even though they're young um but now with like people are talking about like the performance zendaya zendaya i always fuck it up i don't actually know which it is well because then i worked with someone who said it the opposite way that i said it and i go no i think it's this and she goes no i've worked with her and i did wardrobe for her show so i know and i went okay well i'm wrong but uh, <laughs> left my brain immediately no she was a nice person i'm making her seem bitchy but she wasn't i really liked working yeah. with her <laughs> i liked working with her so much but i've i forgot which one it is but people are talking about her performance in such an incredible way martha kelly who um is a stand-up who people are oh, obsessed love. with they say she's like one of the best villains ever created um and also a lot of people that i you know that have struggled with addiction say it's just like this latest episode encompassed what addiction is like in such oh, an amazing wow. way i gotta catch up and I would love to be more connected or understand what some of my friends are going through or mm -hmm. have gone through. Um, and so I'm, I want to kind of do it so I can meet yeah. them somewhere. No, I mean, I think I only say like people just said, oh, if you have kids, don't watch this show. That's what somebody said to me when I just had Rosie. And then I was like, OK, like I I'm not scared of movies like kids or whatever that show kids like doing drugs and fucking and stuff like that. But people were like, it's really intense. Like, don't watch it if you have kids. And I was like, all right, there's so much to watch. I crossed it off my list. But now um, it's back. But it's also strange. It's like teens obviously behaving badly, but maybe you've seen 13. But it's also like we research children oh, yeah. being mutilated constantly. So <laughs> I don't know. I think you can handle it. Yeah, or not. Exactly. Or these performances are so good. But also like the White Lotus actress. Like I'm just excited. Yeah. It's kind of the Yellow Jackets vibe where I'm like excited yeah. about these young up and coming actresses that hopefully we'll be able to like watch work for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she said she like no one cared about her first season of Euphoria because she gets naked a lot, I guess. And then she goes, oh, and then White Lotus. Now everyone's obsessed with me and I'm so talented. Like I've been talented. <laughs> and it's the same thing with the Kirsten Dunst of it all. Like these amazing performances have been shafted because because I always yeah. love those tweets that are like Reese Witherspoon could do this, but Leonardo DiCaprio couldn't do Legally Blonde. You know, yes. I think he could, though, because Wolf of Wall Street was funny. but. <laughs> I yeah it's uh it's I don't know I just am obsessed yeah the Oscar stuff is all out oh somebody did call out to me that West Side Story they were like oh that's messed up Las Culturistas turf war like jets well it is I actually was listening to that Las Culturistas yeah. and I fast forward through their whole discussion but here's the thing. I saw my friend Jed last night, all famously a new friend of Lisa's. And he said, we text, you know that we text. Yeah, no, he told me, he told me, <laughs> I was like, I'm not surprised. Um, and he goes, well, when I'm listening to the podcast, sometimes there's things I want to say to Lisa. So I had to get her number. Um, and so he was saying it was so amazing to watch on the big screen. And I think that's maybe where I went wrong as I watched it on a screener at my house. Like, I think maybe that's where it like blows you away. Like the way I saw in the Heights and loved it, like huge dance numbers, big set pieces, whatever. But like, yeah, I was, and I also just maybe wasn't in the mood, you know, like who knows, but I didn't mean to like fully shit on West Side Story. I just, I couldn't stay with it when I watched it on a screener, but do go to the theater if it's safe.
No, I have one of those where in high school I went like very, very drunk to Eternal Sunshine and I hated it. Oh, <laughs> and I've never wanted to watch it since. And I should. I should. People really love it. Another Kirsten Dunst vehicle. And I want to do that. Yeah. Did you read Melanie Linsky's Rolling Stone thing with Kate Winslet after Heavenly Creatures? No. And I've never seen Heavenly Creatures. Have you? I think I have, or like maybe I just know about it because the Simpsons did an episode based on it. A lot of mm -hmm. my knowledge comes from just like the Simpsons mentioning it. Okay. Um, like, I don't know who Pablo Neruda is, but I do because of the Simpsons. That okay, kind of got stuff. It, got like, it. <laughs> and so I know the idea of Heavenly Creatures. I don't remember if I saw it or not, but they were doing press and Melanie Linsky was just talking about how like Kate was just very sexy and pretty and just knew how to play the and melanie wasn't and eventually harvey weinstein called melanie linsky and said we don't need you on the press tour no one wants to look at you and she was like cut out of the press tour and no one cared about her and then she saw kate winslet kind of blow up and it was something she had to deal with wow yeah. i really like everything i've heard melanie linsky say publicly in all her interviews she's really cool she's a badass and i think i'm going to be able to get to her i do have a mutual friend that knows Jason Ritter. Ah. And I think I'm going to weasel my way in. Eventually. I'm not going to pressure anybody. But, <laughs> but I'm on the lookout. I'm going to catch all the yellow jackets. she's never been on an SVU. <laughs> she should. Maybe we should. I, I'm going to start texting. I'm going to start messaging the casting department with all of our ideas. But Melanie <laughs> Linsky would be amazing on SVU. A mom who murders her children. I think she'd play that so good. Oh, or like God, she, yeah. i just think she would be like upset upset like oh, and then you find out it was her like i do yeah. um i do see that switch no i'm gonna catch all the yellow jackets like pokemon watch out <laughs> all of you better watch out yeah in case you don't know what she's talking about she, on lisa's other podcast she interviewed ben coach ben and they're best friends now so she's Casually, gonna catch all i mean i gave him my number he is not used it uh but i emailed him going this is my number if you'd like it <laughs> and i'll take you anywhere no um that's what i do i i try to act cool the only place i really feel cool is the comedy store the comedy seller like anywhere you feel special and people think it's cool so that's usually what i do i go well if you ever want to come on down be at the yeah. back bar smoke weed in the back hang out the comics give me and a text people will, and i bet you he'll take you up on that at some point he'll be like who do i know that it's a comedian oh right lisa yeah yeah, because I mean, Quentin Tarantino hung out there recently. Brad Pitt's going to Tom Segura shows like the celebs are coming down. So that's like the only place I'm like that I go to in L.A. <laughs> like, I don't know. But um, I that's the only place I feel special. Like, I don't have to wait in line. Like, if you come with me, they won't check your IDs. Yeah. <laughs> little things, little things. You know what? You don't even need to be vaxxed. I'm just kidding. You do. No, you do. You definitely <laughs> all do too. Joking. Well, I always wonder if this is something that's like missing inside of me or where it comes from, but I love missing a line. I love skipping a line. Oh. I love knowing the tickets are waiting for me at will call. Like I love having a badge. I don't know. I don't know why I need it so much, but it makes me feel good. Yeah. I hate waiting in line. I won't really wait in line for almost anything. I waited an hour and a half to go inside of Tom Tom restaurant once. You wouldn't do that. Let's see. You know what? If we were all going and it was like a night plan and they were like, hey, the wait's an hour. You got to wait in like a line. I'd be like, all right, I'm with friends. We're hanging out. But like if there's a bar and there's a line, I'm like, nah, there's another bar down the street. You know what I mean? Like, I don't really 
usually. Well, yeah, but then one day Rosie's going to want something. And guess what? You're going to be waiting in fucking oh, line. Yeah, I'm sure I'll be waiting in line for some kind of fucking. Things just change. It is really toy. wild to see parents because my sister is like truly one of the most thrifty, sale driven, cheap, got to find a deal people. But not. But when the kids want something, she, she just has to give in sometimes. See, that's Jared. I ha- I'm already bad cop in this house. Like, I'm already like, you know, I'm going to have to be the one to say no. But why do you Jared, have to say no? Because Jared's thing is just say yes, fuck it. And I think that we're going to. I'm shocked. I did not to deal see with that it Jared. on the back end when she's a fucking spoiled brat. But what are we talking here? Like, if she wants a pair of Jordans, like in five, in seven years, she's like, oh, I just I need these shoes. I just want them so bad. And everyone has them. They all have Birkenstocks. Your girl, Rosie wants some Birkenstocks and everyone has Birkenstocks. I'll try to find them for her. Yeah, I'll try to find them for her. Like if she really wants like a thing and like, you know, yeah, I guess I'd try to find it for her. Or I'd be like, okay, like maybe for your birthday, for Christmas, like we'll figure out like a special reason, you know, but I would try to find stuff for her. But you know, it's little things of like when we go to Target and she wants to buy everything in there. Like you were with me with her once and you were like, oh, I would just let her have the Paw Patrol yogurt. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to buy $10 of Paw Patrol yogurt because she won't fucking eat it. You know, like I, you have to put your foot down on a bunch of shit. But Jordan's, I don't know, maybe I'd, I, I'd give in. If, she, if it's going to help her look cool, or of course Or tickets are it. driving. It's just like, okay, I guess they're going to Kanye and we're going to wait outside. Yeah, see, I want to let her, I do want to let her go to like experiences and stuff because I feel like my parents always made me like, you know, like when I wanted to do stuff for my parents, I would have to like do a presentation. They didn't make me. That's just like my like funny little uh, way of how I thought I could get things. Like when I first wanted to fly by myself for the first time, a sophomore in high school, I made a full poster. I was like, here's how it's going to go down. Her parents already said it's okay, blah, blah, blah. Like just to go visit a friend from camp who lived in Florida. And like, did they let full you go? Presentation. Yeah, they did. No, yeah, my niece is flying to Minnesota. Every, it's like, it's just cool. You want to enrich your children's lives. It's yeah, nice. I want to let her travel. I want to let her go to experiences, like if we can afford it and stuff. I think a lot of times my parents said no just to say no, and I don't really want to do that. Oh, you think they had the money? They just didn't want to deal with it? Yeah, sometimes. What if she wants to go to Cabo on spring break junior year? I don't know. You know, my parents... um my mom made a parent come with us to Cancun senior year and she got food poisoning. and was in her room the whole time and we got wasted and we were hooking up. Like it was like, there was no point in a parent being there. You know, I also love the idea of like everyone picks the parent, but they pick an accident, like the slutty drunk parent. Yeah. Well, we picked <laughs> my friend's mom who was like really fun and would like let us drink. You know what I mean? Like that's who came with us, but still, yeah, she ended up getting sick. And honestly, it was good she was there because, like, I ran out of money and she gave me money. <laughs> <laughs> Buying too many shots? Yeah. Like, I was like, uh-oh, bought too many yard glasses at Carlos and Charlie's. I guess I got to, like, But you know what else? Money. You know, they all, all the kids have their own debit or credit cards or whatever. And I was like, oh, are you guys going wild? And they're like, well, why would we do that? We don't want to spend our parents' money. It's mostly just for food or if we need shampoo or something. And I'm like, that's not how I would have lived. I think your so nieces just and nephews seem like they were raised in a lab or something. Like they're an experiment. <laughs> like, I don't really get it. Like they're, <laughs> I don't know. Either. They're so responsible and good. Like they, your par- your sister and brother went away and they didn't have a party. Like I had a party every time my parents went out of town. No, uh, uh, my niece was cooking dinner for her brother. Uh, she like, made Alfredo and garlic bread. Couldn't have been me. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's incredible. Well, now they're driving. It's fun. But even like 
I was asked to take uh, my nephew to the bus stop at seven in the morning. And I go, well, what's going to happen if I wasn't here and it was going to be my niece? And immediately I go, absolutely not. She should sleep. She should sleep. It's like, <laughs> yeah, love is weird. Wait, but I am shocked that Jared's the just buy it. I never I didn't picture that. He's just like, just let her have it. I don't want to hear the crying. Let her have it. Like, that's his thing. And I'm like, no, I want to sit and talk to you and say, here's why you can't have it. And like, I do try to do like, you know present parenting or whatever but i don't let her have stuff all the time and he he's like uh whatever you know yeah i can't wait i mean it's just so wild i can't wait to see all these kids grow up oh i know it's gonna be a real ride um we should but, start we should yeah start. let's get started we've got a hot episode sorry today. Do, is it weird we and... talked about the oscars for so long like are we Les culturistas now i don't no, know but... i don't think I mean, we we touched we touched i mean like i think it's cool that there's couples involved because i like that and my husband and i might potentially work on something together and we would like to join the power couple ranks of these people um <laughs> just kidding wait are you um, actively working on something that could be nominated for an oscar is that what you're telling us is this inside scoop yeah this is inside information my husband and i are <laughs> considering the first comedy pilot to be nominated for an oscar oh and i do um, want to give a shout out to monica in northbrook court at the Toomey store thank you for fixing my suitcase you did an incredible <laughs> job so thank you so did much she monica. Listen to the pod or are no. you just sending it into the universe just maybe her niece listens yeah maybe someone at Toomey listens you, i saw you never that know. you wrote that tweet and i think that's a really cool thing about you that you wrote a tweet where you said i was a total bitch to this woman and she was very cool and i want <laughs> yes. you and you tweeted at the corporate office and you were like reward her because she was like okay ma'am i go well what you said was rude and we went we got into it and then she helped me so much and i was like i'm sorry i did apologize <laughs> i go i'm sorry for being rude you were very helpful she goes it's fine I love so. when it comes back around. I love it. Um, but yeah, we've got a great episode. Let's get going. Okay, I would say this is a favorite of mine. Uh, we have a season nine, episode 11, Wonder. And I thought it was later. When I went to watch this, I was searching in the 12s and 11s, and then I was shocked that it was in the nine. But season nine, episode 11, never forget. Oh, <laughs> now I will never forget 9-11. <laughs> Um, so it's streetwise, um, and I like it. And then the next episode after this is signature. And I just don't like that. There's two S's in a row, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, so it opens on jungle vibes, trees, but probably just central park, but it's a blonde ponytail woman and she's rushing through. Um, and then it cuts to a sniper man. Oh no. Big time guns pointed at her. It's a target thing following her and it's cutting and aiming. And it's like, bah, 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 bah. there's a black beanie. Oh, no, he's going to pull the trigger. He says, prepare to die, bitch. And then he gets hit. It's paintball. <laughs> I knew it was going to be a trick. Whenever it's like a laser, like two over the top, they are shooting a movie. Um, and it is paintball. They got us. So paintball. I think in the also park. prepare to die, bitch. A little bit intense for paintball, but OK, you do you. <laughs> <laughs> I've never paintballed. Me um, neither. I would say the greatest paintball cinematic moment is 10 Things I Hate About You. The only one I else I can think of is failure to launch, but it looks painful. It looks like those little pellets really hurt when they hit. I just I laser tag a lot. Like I do enjoy a laser tag moment and <laughs> I'm not very good. I'm always at the end of the leaderboard. Children are beating me. And it's so if I'm like losing with lasers in the dark, I'm not going to go get pelted and get bruised up. So right. 
I'm not a painful, but I, you know, if someone really needed me to go <laughs> anyways, uh, beanie guy reports to paintball master over the walkie talkie, like, Oh no, I actually, there's a body and no one believe. And then it's like, no, she's dead. So there is a dead body in the paintball circuit area. So we cut to a full time crime scene crew in the park investigating Maloney walks in confident as hell asking what's up bitches. Uh, Benson and Melinda are on the case. Um, and it's a female Jane Doe. Her legs are splayed wide apart and one is on a log and it is horrific, but it must have been a silly part to play. It's not a comfortable position. It is wild and she is spread eagle over a log. So (laughs) a rough day at the office, I would say. So time of death was 10 p.m. Blunt force trauma to the head with a rock. So some sort of thing, but they would have taken the rock. We can't see any rocks with blood. There is fluid in the underpants. Earlobes are torn. You don't want a ripped earlobe uh, ever. Um, So this is a lot. And one earring that they left is very expensive. And it's, you know, we love this. Oh, and I'll take a moment to say Benson has like a posh, like it's posh. It's um, posh spice, Victoria Beckham style Bob mixed with boy band. Like I've never noticed the posh connection, but now I can't stop. And she does. This is a posh like haircut. Um, oh yeah and it's never been in the conversation before but i think she was channeling victoria beckham and one of the most giant huge haircuts of my life was fifth grade and i got an asymmetrical victoria beckham bob (laughs) from having long hair forever and then this bitch amber saw me at school and was like so do you think your haircut looks good like what a dumb bitch (laughs) wow But she was, I don't know, she had lots of problems. Like, that's the thing. Knowing what I know now about so many young people in my life, I'm like, I wonder what was happening. Yeah. She's the one that got hit in the head with the brick. Oh, my God. Remember I told you about that? Yeah. And she's never been the same. It was her. Well, did she make the comment about the haircut pre or post brick? Pre. That was fifth grade. Oh, so she was a bitch before the brick. She was a bitch. She was really mean and she kind of bullied me, but I did go to underage nightclubs with her in junior high. (laughs) Okay. That came back around. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and my haircut did look good um <laughs> so we got to check the pawn shops because this e- like one earring is worth five grand and melinda- which i loved i loved this that melinda was like i know exactly how much these earrings are worth like benson was like side-eyeing her <laughs> yeah but it's because her sister is a buyer for sacks and it's like okay great little tidbit thank you writers but so her and her sister are discussing the prices of earrings yeah, like- right my sister's an elementary school teacher i don't know like different teaching methods <laughs> like yeah, it's just wild that she would know the price of this earring. I mean, maybe if her sister like, which one? But then why do you have the job well, as a buyer I like for the sax? Idea of it. I like the idea that she's like at like some kind of Saks Fifth Avenue meeting with like Prada trying to buy something. And then she's like, oh, that's semen. Sorry, my my sister's a medical examiner. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the opposite situation. It was just uh, fun, but I'm happy to know. Whatever. We get, we're at the credits. We're back from the credits. Where are we? The morgue, of course. Jane Doe was drunk, so it is her fault. Um, they found <laughs> paint residue in her hair wound, um, and they're trying to match the color of that. Um, and it's wall paint. It's not paintball, uh, which obviously would have um, you know solved that case quicker. Um, but what are the odds that there's multiple paint samples? But um, and it's so it's like rust and paint and there's sperm inside of her. Um, and then Shelby Crawford is the victim's name. And she's in the system because she had a DUI back in the day. She was driving a sob, which I think is a niche luxury, perfect vehicle. Love it. Love um, it. And I think Sarah Silverman loves a sob. 
and that makes it cool. Even Sobs cooler. were huge when I was growing up. Well, like, especially in your neck of the woods. Yes, especially where I grew up. Like the most popular girl at my school got a convertible sob when she turned 16. Like it was like just the it was like a hot car. You could tell it was in like a less rich suburb because the convertible that the rich girls got was like the Chrysler ones. Like a oh, bunch like a of Sebring. People, <laughs> yeah, a bunch of girls yeah. got Sebrings, which I think is an old person <laughs> car. I'd rather have a no, I don't I, you know, you're a teen, you're happy with everything. But um they head to the Crawford residence, Park Avenue, fancy. Um, Mom on the couch says Shelby hasn't touched alcohol since the accident. And Benson's like, well, it was in her system. So your daughter's a lying slut. Um, so what do you have to say about that? Um, and the dad is standing and being like, well, I mean, maybe she was lying to us. Stabler asks why they didn't report her missing. And it's the classic like, oh, she was sleeping at her friend Claire's house. They were hanging out, getting ready for their debutante ball, which was across the street at the plaza from the crime scene. So we know exactly where this is and how rich they are. The plaza is like a thousand dollars a night for a room, like a casual room on a winter evening. Um, so one day I'll stay there. So they go through some photos with her parents and in one photo, she's not smiling. And they're like, who's this man with her? And whenever there's like any sort of picture with a girl and guy and the girl is not smiling, it's like he did it. I this is one <laughs> method of the SVU department. I'm always really shocked by how like one photo, especially now we take so many like one yeah. sad look and that's it. Like, that's it. <laughs> But um, it's Doug. It's Doug Walsh and Shelby's boyfriend. And uh, the mom describes him as a mother's dream. Doug wouldn't do this. He comes from a good family. But, you know, the Max Factor guy, he committed crimes. Good families mean nothing. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, it means worse. Hello, Blood Brothers. Blood Brothers. (laughs) Yeah. And then she starts crying a little. She goes, he actually wouldn't be home. He's probably waiting for her at the debutante ball right now that's that's heavy so they go to the ball and talk to you know some nerd boys everyone and i was like there's no way they're actually dating but okay um he is a rich dork uh, maybe if he was he could be cute if he wasn't such a dork i'll say that much mm-hmm. he has a bow tie on um he he says i can't believe shelby is dead i worshipped her stabler takes the photo out and goes well she's not smiling so did she worship you back <laughs> like i just <laughs> i love every bad photo of your life that suddenly there's a suspect <laughs> like can you imagine like i look crazy in half my photos i would be like oh kara clank has murdered everyone she knows yeah so she looks like she's about to have a root canal is you know stabler's vibe and he's like she was just in a bad mood get over it you know women get whatever stabler goes are you sure it's not you who caused her to be in a bad mood and he goes why are you bullying me and that's even before bullying became such a hot button word so i love that always ahead of the the trends and um he goes no they were at the ball at the plaza the night before um so is this a two-night affair this ball like what's happening how do they already have yeah, printed like a four pre-ball? by six glossy pictures <laughs> so they were there last night and then again i i don't understand what is happening if you guys are in the debutante world let us know hit us up what are the debutante facts is it a multi-day affair is it like an indian wedding or have they made some mistakes in the timeline benson is with two teen girls with crowns and they're chatting in the girls bathroom and they're like why was she at the park by herself and the princesses with heavy heavy eye makeup glossy lips like perfect they're like she always does her own thing and she shows the photo and she says they don't look like lovebirds and one of the girls cries and runs away and the other one Claire says maybe she hooked up with Tony um so she was kind of seeing this other guy Tony he goes to public school and he's in a band called Sticky Butterfingers 
and they practice on Watt Street above a Chinese bakery. So fucking hot. Um, so they go to a member of the band wearing his own merch, which is, I do that a lot. I, I am always nervous that people are going to see me wearing my own merch. And I did get a tattoo and, the, uh, Cal was like, is, are you wearing your own podcast merch? I go, yeah, leave me alone. I can't. <laughs> I wear our merch. It's nice. It's soft. It's like comfortable. Of course. I know, but it is embarrassing, but it is what I want for the future. Why wouldn't I wear the things I think are cool <laughs> that I made? But it doesn't look if you're not allowed to wear like a band's merch to their own co- that concert, like I don't, whatever rules aren't for us. Not if you're in sticky butterfingers. <laughs> the guy shaved head. He's sad. He's crying. He's sorry. Yesterday, he snuck over to the place around five and um, they came up back and hooked up on the stairwell before she went to her dance. So Stabler's like, wait, you fucked outside while all of her friends and family were inside waiting, taking pictures. And he's like, yeah, it was hot. <laughs> so I love Tony. Um, then he played a gig at the Roxy and the alibi does check out. Uh, the venue said sound check till that night. And then the thing Shelby also sent him a video um, that he vows to keep forever. Very romantic. Um, if something happens to me, you do not. Oh, Kara, you would delete everything anyways. I don't think you'd be sentimental. What? No. <laughs> Are you kidding? I'm a sentimental hoarder. I keep I have every letter anyone's ever written me, every card anyone's ever sent me. But why can't I? Where? Where are they? They're in a trunk in my garage, in my camp trunk. Very misty of me. <laughs> Very misty. <laughs> I was telling someone about Yellow Jackets again, and he legit said, do you work for the show? Are th- <laughs> and I, <laughs> I was like, no, not at all. I don't. No, the people who work for the show could never talk about it with as much passion as Lisa does. <laughs> I know I keep sending stuff to the group chat and everyone's like, I think we're done. We're not going to read any more vanity (laughs) fairs. Can you please stop it? But I'm not ready. I'm not ready to let it go. And, you know, you're up when the sweatshirt comes in. Yeah. Oh, you'll be be getting some chats. (laughs) You guys will post it on our stories. Lisa's new yellow jacket sweatshirt. Okay. so and then, oh, this is my own joke. Or did he or did maybe Stabler said this? I go, yeah, until you lose your phone, bro. This is before the cloud. This is season nine. So. I don't know how you kept things forever. Um, the video is uh, cute and it's like a sweet message. She's like, this ball sucks. Um, and that she and Anna went to the park to get drunk. And that's the girl from earlier who ran off crying and like didn't know anything. Um, so we're like, hey, bitch, actually, we have you on camera getting drunk with the victim in the park she was found in. So uh oh, they go to visit Anna. She has a classic dress made, which I thought meant old money. We did have a former oh, housekeeper yes. message us and say it's actually the opposite. That's super old old money doesn't care and new money wants you to look a certain way but that's probably in reality but in the svu universe i think when they have somebody in like a french made outfit they're trying to telegraph that it's like a really fancy family and old money oh, in this universe yes in our universe yeah. it is in the real yeah. world i guess the the richer you are the the more casual you are um i did tweet this it is a, i'm probably gonna watch this 800 times but friends with money is on netflix one of my favorite movies oh i want to watch that have you seen it no i don't think so <gasps> oh my god okay you have to watch it yeah i i love it but Jennifer Aniston is a maid and it's like no one believes you yeah I want to watch that (laughs) so anyways Anna's parents rich 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 they're in Tahiti for three weeks okay they ditched their annoying daughter 
And then they're going to Paris for the spring collections. I'm obsessed. I want to live that life. They um, enter her giant, huge, cool room. It's a really um, Regina George, Mean Girls, giant, rich girl room. Uh, dream vibes. And um, so even though the beds look comfy in all the chairs, she, they, there is a stand up against the closet door making out. And this teen is wearing a hot pink bra, a mini denim skirt, uh, and belts and socks are matching. They're both yellow. Uh, yeah, it's the like there's a million beds and they're just like, let's make out against the wall. <laughs> yeah, like maybe for two seconds. I don't know. Yeah. I, <laughs> Uh, so the detectives turn off the music. The teens are shocked. And it's like, what are you doing here? Oh, my God. Benson tells them to get dressed and throws clothes at them. And we're all at the precinct. And they're like, why'd you lie, girl? Why'd you lie? Why are you lying? Uh, she said she was scared because they were underage drinking. I always hate this. The people are so selfish. Like, you're so scared of maybe an underage drinking ticket that you're going to let your friend lay dead in the park. It's yeah. so fucked up. But <laughs> you never know how you're going to act. Um. So the guy that she's hooking up with is actually the penguin dork from earlier. So and now he seems hot. Maybe it's because now I, he's like cheating in this bad boy. I'm like, OK, <laughs> this teen's looking better. But um, so he's double playing the girls. But he's like, I would never kill her. And Stabler goes, yeah, but you'd fuck her best friend. OK, um, he said that's what men do. Oh, and then Anna's with Benson going, me and Doug are in love. And I do love that. Um, he blames Anna and calls her a crazy bitch and that she's jealous of Shelby. Stabler comes back with, well, aren't you jealous that she's fucking other dudes? Are you mad? And so there's this classic gender split up, yada, yada, this and that. We're not like, blah, 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 blah. Then they show a picture of her mutilated dead face. It is very Van from Yellow Jackets. And I did not like looking at it. It was a pretty gruesome morgue crime scene photo. Um, I didn't like it. He swears he didn't do it. And I do believe him because we're only seven minutes in. It's not Penguin <laughs> Dork. So they talk about Tony Wham Bam. Cragen comes in and says that Tony, um, the rocker hottie, that his alibi checked out. So it has to be one of them. And so Cragen says, just put the rats in the cage. So <laughs> I like that. So the of course, the teens start arguing in the cage in the center of the precinct. And she says that after he left, she called her real boyfriend and he calls her a whore and she slaps him and they're in a scuffle and Stabler comes to break them up. And the girl yells, you are so going to jail for this which i think is a very fun line to scream out um, <laughs> you are so, there are better lines in this episode about say the line of the episode no there are some that i really really love i love this episode um yeah and marishka's manhandling her as she's screaming that like it's really a scene for the ages craigan says um hey maybe not we got a hit on shelby's earring from her pawn shop hell yeah so finn and lake lake why are you here uh they <laughs> head to big jerry's pawn shop and i love big jerry he's uh this is a really funny acted part he plays super dumb and when they read back the invoice the address is one two three peekaboo lane and he's like Oh, yeah. Well, I guess that does sound suspicious. So I love that. <laughs> um, he's played by a man named Michael Mandel, who sadly did die of, in July of 2020. So I'm glad we can celebrate him here today yeah. and his lovely performance. Ice's full tight braid Finn moment. They uh, check the camera and it's a kid sunshine and it's illegal. But Big Jerry says a guy's got to eat. And Ice says, well, you need to go on a diet. And some of our listeners might, you know, yell at iced tea for fat shaming. So this girl is malnourished as hell. They're like, there's no way she took down Shelby alone. 
she must have had other people. And Jerry helps out and says that she kept talking about family and that her family hadn't eaten for days and that the dad told her to pawn the earring. So a homeless family and daddy does murder to bring home the bacon is kind of the synopsis that we're getting from this. Cut to precinct time and we're looking at the footage for clues. Um, our buddy Joel De La Fuente is sweetening up the image, which we all know is not real technology. Benson <laughs> notices the writing on her jacket and he's gonna blow it up um and she's like oh yeah i saw a kid tagging with that exact symbol yesterday i i pay attention to every movement in the fucking yeah. city um she says he asked for money on the train so maybe it's a bunch of homeless kids in a gang so they decide to check for youth shelters near the pawn shop and there were three stabler calls him ruben which is fun i don't know if i have ever noticed them actually like call like refer to him by his name and talk to him mm -hmm. so i liked that so three blocks away, they go to the center. And yes, the worker there knows who that is. That is Josie. And she comes to creative writing at the center. And she loves to write. And Josie is her most talented student. Her voice is lyrical. And she cares about all of her kids. But Josie is her favorite. And I just always think of Josie Grossy from Never Been Kissed. That's all. <laughs> that's the Josie for me. And I, I do know the Pussycats. Oh, I love that too. And I know one girl named Josie in San Francisco. But I'm always Josie Grossy. <laughs> Uh, but Josie left the center um, and went back to her street family. And the street gang's name is Phalanx. Phalanx. Whatever. P-H-X. Phalanx. Did yeah. you have fun at Word? Okay, you know what sucks? My uh, phone and laptop aren't connect. This won't, the Wordle won't connect. So my Wordles are in different spaces. Oh. So I'm annoyed because sometimes I'm out and about and I'm like, fuck, I got to get my Wordle in before midnight. Yeah, I only do it on my phone. Um, and, but I like the, you know, I like the clicking. I like the clicking. Yeah. So, yeah. so whatever. Phalanx is in the name. Um, there's two parents, Cole and Cassidy, and they play house with homeless kids. That's what Maloney said. It's nationwide and there are homeless family groups all over and Cassidy and Cole make the rules here and the kids follow it. So Cassidy is Mae Whitman, who I love dearly. I am a parenthood girl um, and one fine day meant a lot to me. And she obviously like people love her and hope floats and she's in good girls. Arrested development. Stuff. Arrested yes. development. She's egg slash Anne. She's so funny <laughs> in Arrested Development. Yeah. But I looked her up. 157 credits. Wow. Yeah. Honey's she's been working. Acting her, like her whole life, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But um, she's also a great crier. She parenthood. She cried a lot. She is a very, very good crier. And she does a lot of voices. She's also been in Jag, which I find funny. Uh, anytime we get to mention Jag, that that was like in existence in our life is funny. But she's a cartoon and Cole is fucking hot. So dark hair, light eyes, winning combo for sexualness. His name used to be Tom Bishops, but now he goes by Tarek Bashara. So he probably had some religious enlightenment moment, but that's what you need to know about him. He had a big life shift. If you go from Thomas to Tarek, something's up. Yeah. <laughs> Back to Josie. What was she running away from? Not good. Mom had boyfriends who like, you know, molested her. The lady at the center is like, OK, well, you wouldn't be here if it wasn't bad news. So she, what's up? So they go, well, she might be involved in a murder. And the center lady goes, then it's Cole's fault. He's such a jerk. He tells them he loves them, but then makes them earn it by doing stuff. Marishka in her posh spice hair era says very um, Charles Manson. And she says one thing is he does not have sex with his children. So that's huge for a cult leader yeah. to not to not fuck your constituents. That's huge. 
That's huge. <laughs> a plus in cult leading. Uh, they go to 180th and 11th Avenue. And Mariska says, let's go feud with the family. Love that. They go to an encampment. It's under the bridge. There's a basketball hoop. And they, you know, there's a badge flash. Benson kind of comes on to her a little bit and goes, wow, those photos don't do you justice. So she has a crush on this uh, renegade mom. She has a dog with her red uh, dyed dreads. Uh, dreads on a white person are already hard, but, you know, it yeah. happens. Yeah. Thick eyeliner. <laughs> there's a lip ring, flannel. She's a tough cookie. Cole comes and Stabler says, daddy's home. And he says the kids are out panhandling um, on the streets. So that's sad to hear. I don't like seeing children on the streets like that. Kids come back and they see Josie and Cole screams, scatter. And they all run in different directions. So... You know, they're not new to this street rodeo. There's a chase, a middle of the street with cars. This scene is incredible. This is like out of an action film. Um, there's cars, trucks. Cole is running in the middle of the street. Uh, Sabler's behind him. We get the bridge. We get some skyline. We get Scott. Like, it's so epic. Cole grabs onto the back of a truck. Stabler's trying to grab him. And Cole... Um, gets into the sunset under the bridge holding on to a truck so it's a great action scene so which made me go look at who the director was and it's helen shaver very accomplished she's an actor director working since the 1970s very respected and has um has done so many svu episodes so as Cole is getting away, evil, evil, smile, evil. Uh, Benson is wrangling Josie, who's fighting so hard to get away. And we cut to interrogation and Josie is giving Benson the silent treatment. They say to her, listen, you pawned an earring, but you didn't commit murders to so tell us what's up. And she spits in Stabler's face. Ooh. How do they film that? I bet. Mal I mean, this is pre-COVID, but I bet Maloney's like spit in my face. Do it. I mean, Maloney had to like piss on people. Remember, like Maloney's yeah. had liquids in his face before. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is true. She says, up yours. And she refuses to rat on anybody. Her real mom kicked her out instead of her pedophile boyfriend. And she was only nine. She has not eaten in two fucking days. She's from Arizona. She hitched a ride with a guy who made her do stuff, obviously. Aww. And then when they got to the FDR, he just pushed her out of the van. Why are there so many monsters everywhere? It's so yeah. fucked up. And when a child only sees the worst in the world constantly, it's just so fucked. And Cole's no different, but she doesn't think her dad would ever do that to her. So they play survivor challenge games with her, coercion, bribes, yada, yada. So then they decide to bring in pizza and whipped cream and food and desserts and just eat in front of her because they know she's hungry, which I think is really fucked up. The cookies are still warm. Maloney says, best pizza in the city. This is so evil. Um, she's putting chocolate syrup and sprinkles on the ice cream and they're making noises and she's got to know what's happening but when you're starving food takes over i mean i don't know but i hate this so they say she can have some as soon as she starts talking about the earring so we get the scoop she wasn't there when the rich girl died only dad and mom were there and they give her a cookie and she starts eating it wildly Mowgli style and Stabler looks like he's <laughs> thinking about his own kids and they eat pizza cassidy heard the rich girl called dad a stupid you know what? Bad word for gay. The F word that's not fuck. Yeah, F word that's not fuck. 
which means SOS stop on site. And he hit her with a smiley chain, which is rusted with black paint. Hello, ding, 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 ding. Uh, they won't let her go back and she's scared and sad and Paige from the center comes to pick her up. So she'll stay at the shelter um, and tomorrow morning they'll plan what to do. So the cops come back to the bridge tunnel home area and oh no, above Josie's little tent room, it says in graffiti, Josie equals traitor, traitors must die. How would they know? She got caught, know. but you can't be mad at someone for getting caught. It doesn't mean she's talking. Like, I don't know what, like, I just don't understand how they found out. And there's no yeah. evidence she said anything or did anything bad, but they got to move because, uh, but they're too late. So they go to get her from the shelter, but Paige, the shelter lady is fucking killed, dead, no pulse. And Cole took Josie and he is a killer, a fucking disgusting killer. Believe someone when they show you who they are the first time. We have a curly haired Melinda. Thank God I've missed her. So Lake comes in with notebooks and it's Josie's writing. And then he starts talking about some robbery in the park from back in the day that he remembered. And they all remember this case. And then they show the short story and the crime is like so specific. And there's imagery and metaphors but it's clearly about this she's a very talented writer and her stories are evidence of the crimes that the family committed these stories would connect cole to three more murders um, about bodies being buried all over Cassidy Mama Bear Whitman runs in looking for Josie. She's scared and stressed. Where's my daughter? Where is my baby? And she's like, oh, no, you have to save my baby after they say Cole took her. So she knows what is at stake right now. Basically, uh, since she was snatched, he said she knew too much and it's no good. And she tried to talk him out of it. Um, so she took all the other kids and went to a camp in Astoria um, and then came to like find Josie but I guess Cole did and you know they're like well where would Cole go what's going on she goes I'm not lying I'm not lying they say why would we trust you and she says I wouldn't lie and put all my other kids at risk and Stabler goes they're not your kids and she said I take care of them when they're sick and I listen to their problems and I'm a mom so and Stabler goes yeah moms wouldn't let their kids commit murder and rob for them so checkmate bitch mm -hmm. iced tea interrupts not good news Josie has turned up a con ed staffer found her stuffed in a manhole fuck mm. they're at the moor cassidy is crying and this is one of the most horrific things because we know josie now and she's such a sweet young girl who's only had a tough life eyes gouged out and cheeks slipped from ear to ear that is gruesome he tortured her for 12 hours and she didn't even do anything that bad i just i don't like that they sh i don't like this I don't like seeing her and then seeing yeah. I, I vicious things happen on this show all the time, but this one upsets me. Um, yeah. Cassidy runs and pukes in the sink. She's crying. She's an incredible actress. And um, she says that Cole saved her life and that her mom rented out her body to drug dealers for three years. And it was hell. And uh, Stabler says, well, Cole's going to hell. So what he did to Josie and. They reveal they know about the three dead bodies. Casey Novak finally appears. Maroon burgundy wine colored suit situation. And they bring out the stories in the journals. And girl, you're the main character in these stories, honey. So what is up? And she reads about the battles, bombs, lions, crows. Is this good writing? I'm not sure. Let us know <laughs> here. She was also 11 when she got kicked out. So her leader, her lover, her life. Should we get that tattooed? 
so she said she killed uh, nobody, but the law says she's just as guilty as he is. Um, so she very quickly says, I want a deal. Very fast, very fast turning on him. But also the guy slit your fucking child and gouged her eyes out. So it doesn't matter if you love this guy or he saved you. He's obviously a murderer. She says, I talk and I get a one-way ticket to San Francisco to join a street family out there. And she asks for a bus ticket and it, shoot for the moon. Maybe a plane? I don't know. It's so funny. <laughs> Uh, she starts talking about where all the bodies are buried around town and they do, you know, the cutaways where they're finding and digging up the bodies as her voice is talking and they cut back and forth. There's a homeless guy in Prospect Park. That's the first uh, time of the murder. And he was scaring the kids into respecting him. So if that, you know, if Rosie doesn't respect you, I guess that's a cool way to do it. Just murder yeah, someone in front of good her. Good to know. Filing that one away. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we <laughs> should let the Montessori know we have some ideas. <laughs> But also, can you bury a body in Prospect Park? Like, people are out and about. It's a well-kept park. If so you just dug a hole in Prospect Park, I think someone would yeah, see it. Yeah, you would, it. like, notice, like, fresh dirt. Yeah, it's weird. I don't think it's realistic. I, like, I don't think Dexter would do that. They're showing bones and mummies and... The rule of the family is honor thy mother or father or die. And that just seems harsh. Why can't you just banish them from your group? Ugh. So Van Cortland Park, there's a guy named Bernsey. He wanted, he said that he could be a better father than Cole. So Cole stabbed him 30 times. And then Larissa's ex-wife disrespected him and the rules uh, apply to past crimes. So he went back and killed his ex. And then they say, well, Shelby Crawford, sorry, one more. Tell us what happened. She says she was pissing in a bush and there was a rich girl with a fancy phone. So they wanted to rob her for the earrings and the phone. Uh, but she was super drunk and didn't fight back. So why are you killing her and it's because she started to talk shit and said you know the words that cole does not like mm -hmm. may whitman is saying that she tried to tell the girl to shut up but she wouldn't when cole asked her what did the girl say may whitman said the rich girl this you know shelby you have to kill her so he killed her with the chain um then they ran when they heard voices am i done california here you come benson says so now it's time to testify. She has to testify before she leaves, which means she needs to get to Cole to have a trial. So they're like, the quicker you get us to Cole, the quicker the trial, the quicker you testify, the quicker you could take a bus to San Francisco. <laughs> so he's in Fort Greene. They're hiding out in a warehouse. And so many neighbors and parks were mentioned in this episode, like none other. No, no other even chase around the city has mentioned so many different areas. We're in Astoria. We're in like Van Cortlandt. We're everywhere. We're at 180th and 11th. Like this family is traveling. They are seeing all of New York. Mm. So yeah. they go into this warehouse. There's a lot of machines and Stabler is walking around. We know something's going to happen. The motherfucker pops out and starts fighting with Stabler. Again, this direction is incredible. This fight scene is out of control. There's chains. There's chokes there. It's uh, I love it. Um, it's a really aggressive fight. Elbow hitting, screaming, choking out, flip flopping, grunting, almost dying. There's stacks of mattresses against the wall. Where did they come from? Um, so then after the fight, obviously, Stabler, you know, punches his face a ton of times and gets his anger out. And Benson comes with the gun. And then they go straight to the photos of the victims being dropped on the table in front of Cole in the interrogation room. The one of Josie is so fucked up. It's like the Joker makeup, but blood, full blood. Ugh. He is wearing eyeliner. And then he claims that these photos are photoshopped. The jig is up, dude. Emo boy. Yeah. 
Stabler shows him the short stories um, and he lets them cr- like crinkle and they look like the original copies, which I was ner- I was like, why are you giving him the evidence? I don't understand. They don't they look real. I had like the sprayed I- slate. What is that called? Frayed edges, you know, oh, ripping yeah. out of a notebook. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, don't give them the originals. <laughs> and then Maloney does say something very powerful. He goes, you killed Josie and she still helped us nail your ass. Fuck you, scum. I wish I could spit on his face. Cole said, I mean, he might like it. Okay, Cole says, yeah, it's sad. But at the end of the day, Josie was just a bad apple. I hate him so much. He thinks he's a provider and that people flock to him as refugees from Babylon. So I think he thinks he's Jesus at this point. Um, he starts talking about drones and McJobs and freedom and, you know, adults prey on children for sex. But uh, I mean, yeah, that uh, you, you got you're, us. You're so noble that you don't have sex with kids. You just murder them. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was actually listening um, to Whitney Cummings podcast and Jenna Freeman was on. They were talking about murder and how a lot of when he was saying a lot of psychopaths like they think murder is a solution to a problem where they'll say she just wouldn't stop screaming so i had to do something yeah 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 and so that's like this where this is just the code she did the she did the thing she knew she wasn't allowed to do yeah. and we just had to kill her yeah not at a side we need because we have 18 more twists to come <laughs> and one of the crimes of a generation so stabler is like um your kids rob and murder and he's like yeah but it's to provide for the family but that means you're creating your own capitalist fucked up regime bro like that's not freedom he screams my dad was a violent guy who pounded me for laughs and yeah we obviously get you were abused sir he uh gets the kids because they're just like him and they connect and stabler says no they're your pawns and you're a sociopath yeah once you kill josie and exes her past crimes you're done playing good daddy sorry he starts talking about freedom and being free i'd rather have some rules in a house but that's just me he and you have rules too he then talks about his wife and sailor's like um honey your wife's with us now and he goes no way she would never side with you we have our own courts um which is an easy lap for stabler who goes well you'll see her in our courts baby and that's where we go we're in court trial part 46 and cassie is dreadless now with her colored hair in a ponytail and wearing a cardigan and spilling the beans on the stand uh they were having a family picnic until a homeless she just gives the details okay but cole starts screaming she's lying and i do believe him what happened um in the bushes casey novak asks um and like blocks the sidelines so she can't look at cole yelling at her and she says cole started pummeling him and because you can't disrespect cole in front of his children and cole just looks super confused um and they start you know more and more details that he used the chain in the murder and cole starts banging on the table and screams liar whore does not help your case sir she starts crying on the sand saying i'm sorry and he stands up screaming how she has broken every rule sacred to their family and he's banging on the desk he yells she's a disgrace and she's crying he jumps on the table he's threatening her i mean this is the best episode ever uh you will never be safe again Again, back at the precinct, Stabler's stirring a little coffee. Benson walks in and goes, ah, he got 25 to life consecutive for each murder. 
Then two super rich upper crust people run in with a newspaper. They recognize their daughter. What the fuck? It's Cassidy, a.k.a. Mae Whitman, a.k.a. her real name is Helen. She is rich. Those are her parents. So then we see a queen, the, you know, our queen in this little tiny room. And she goes, where is the bus ticket? Very entitled. And now it all makes sense. Stabler's playing it cool since he knows he has like all, you know, he's holding all the cards. He says, hey, I want to show you something and starts to open the blinds. And she sees her rich parents and she realizes she's gotten gotten but then still denies knowing them but your face said everything bitch she says what do you want me to say and stabler's flabbergasted like heavy breathing like a cartoon like what like he can't like what um how about the truth bitch she admits she's from park avenue the rich parents say, I can't believe she was this close. She ran away, to, but to be in the same borough, oh my God. And they hired private detectives, which, you know, money can't buy good detective skills. Benson makes a good point that living on the street leaves not a big, you know, footprint to find somebody. What was she doing there? She had the perfect life. But then we cut to Helen saying, they never had any time for me except to boss me around. Don't slouch, eat veggies, go to your tutor, go to college. And Stabler says... Seems like they were just acting like parents. She says <laughs> she's a parent and she would never act that way. And I'm sorry. He's like, six people are dead. And she screams, <laughs> it's not my fault. He's like, nah, you stood around and watched him murder. You're not rich. You're not a street kid. Who the hell are you? And we see her little psycho vibe come out. Um, I started saying vibe as a joke, and now it is part of my full vocabulary. I hate yeah. myself so much, and I can't stop <laughs> saying it. I listen Everybody to myself Everybody says now. it though. It's a, it's like it's like just a word in the ether right now. Everybody says it so much. I know, but it's it doesn't take away the embarrassment of it. It really <laughs> doesn't. It doesn't. And she goes, oh, does it make you feel like a big, tough man? Boss people around and flash your little badge like it means something. Well, guess what, man? It means nothing. I was just like, love. I love her. Um, then it cuts to the rich parents saying they thought they did the best they could, but I guess we might have pushed too hard. The mom says, you know, the school was just so competitive. Excuse Wait, what school did you say? St. Winifred's. Does that ring a bell? Oh, my God. Listeners. Hello. That is where Shelby Crawford went to school. Benson asked, did she know Shelby Crawford? And the mom says yes. And it's like, you're happy to see your daughter for forever. Why don't you have her back and lie a little bit? Why are you, fed, you know, you're just sending her to the wolves of Benson? So I didn't love it. Defend your daughter. You haven't seen her forever. Like there's a reason. Well, she you also you. would cover up a crime for your child. We've talked about this before. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I'm. That's how I'm a misty. I will. So this is a bomb. This changes everything. We cut to Benson with the school yearbook talking to Cassidy, a.k.a. Helen, like, wow, what a coincidence. You and Shelby, they were in the same class. So Shelby, obviously you saw her. You freaked out that she would blast your fantasy life into pieces. And uh, come on, you're caught. I just don't get the picking the streets over being rich as hell. That's confusing. So then they go, she didn't say anything bad to Cole, did she? She just told him that because she knew that he would fall for it and she couldn't risk Shelby blabbing around and getting caught. So we know what you're doing. And she goes, I couldn't go back to living that hell. And Stabler says, a cook and a chauffeur? What? Like, I know rich people have problems, whatever, but there's no way living on the streets is uh, better than vegetables. And also, if you live in New York City, like it, it can be a small city. You do run into people. If you're trying to be an under the radar, like street kid, move to another city. Like it's so weird. You stayed in your own city. 
Yeah, but it shows maybe how separate stuff. I guess she was on the west side and they were on the east. Maybe. It sounds like they were all over the People place. People didn't travel as much anymore because, well, their main encampment as well, was like on 11th Ave. But, you know, Sex in the City back in the day, it's like, I'm not going to Brooklyn. I don't know anything, you know, below, below 14th, 14th Street. Street. Yeah. So I think like back in the day, people were stuck in their neighborhoods or maybe it's just the people that were watching on television. I don't know. No, nobody's real. This is all writers in a room. <laughs> so. She says, you don't understand. And Benson's like, yeah, I don't understand. A girl who has everything lying about being raped. Yeah, they don't like that here at SVU. <laughs> da- and then the, her rich dad comes in. She's back to being rich, honey. And he goes, charge my daughter. Or we walk out the door. Come on, Helen, they can't touch you. And she skedaddles away. Cut to a uh, walk and talk with Benson and Stabler and Casey Novak. And Casey says that they're going to get her on man too. Even if she didn't hold the weapon, the law says it is her fault because the lies in her mouth made like without her lies the murder would not have happened um and if the lie instigated the murder we do need cole to testify against her so we cut to rikers and they go cole baby baby she ratted your ass out on the stand so do the same he says screw you mama i'm not testifying against her and benson begins to read the transcript from court where helen says all of this shit about him calling him a tyrant and they cut from helen reading on the stand looking very very different yellow had band to match like a yellow outer wear piece black turtleneck with pearls her Hair's cut short and a baby bob, swooped bangs, very structured, pink glossy lip. And she said, at first he was my protector, but then he went crazy and violent. She was scared of him, that he would kill the little ones. So she stayed to protect the children. And oh my God, I can't believe he killed an old classmate of mine. I knew if he killed someone as innocent as Shelby, he would murder anybody. And I didn't want to be next on my husband's hit list. He says, I loved her and would never. And Benson, you killed Josie. Like the, the jig is. Yeah. up about like your love meaning anything and benson says she lied about everything come on and then starts showing photos of helen's lies uses against her uses the disrespect trigger hello she disrespected you and that worked so now we cut to court again on helen's rich face she's in a chanel tweed moment another headband um and a white frilly shirt her eyelashes look amazing her makeup is good i took a screenshot and i'm going to show this to makeup artists for years to come like casual but impactful perfect lashes but um over her face we hear cole talking on the stand speaking truth you didn't like your parents rules get ready for jail bitch like if you thought upper east side living was hard uh jail yeah. is not cool you don't do anything without a rule or a line so um he did rob the rich girl and take the earrings and they were gonna leave and then helen said that the rich girl called him the f word that's not fuck and it pissed him off she said you have to do something about it and if you don't you're not a real man respect and authority is all he had and she said how are you gonna lead this family if they don't respect you so yeah the code and that's the law and he had to kill her with and without the lie he would not have killed shelby but novak asks cole like why should anyone believe you he goes well i admitted to killing six people so (laughs) whatever he's like i never lie ask my kids i only murder i'm admitting everything no lies here may's acting and reacting face is so good i don't even know how to describe it but there's a sheen of tears building up in the eye but not dropping down 
We find the defendant guilty. She gasps. She can't believe it. Her lip gloss is popping and she is in shock. She looks pissed and she turns to Novak with the line of the episode and goes, I hate your guts. And Novak <laughs> smiles. She's okay with it. She doesn't care. Um, she gets a bunch of files. I'm sure she has an evening of paperwork and whiskey ahead of her. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, bye-bye. Have fun in jail. That's Dick Wolf. Wow. A classic classic. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking us through that, Lisa. We will be right back after these messages with The Real Crime. Okay, so this episode is based on street families. And there is a reference that I'll give you guys in the What Would Sister Peg Do um, segment coming up. But I think that it's pretty clear that there's some parallels to the OG street family, uh, the Manson family. So that's what I'm going to be talking about today. And listen, um, there is honestly never ending information about the Manson family. Like I'm not going to be able to cover it in 30 minutes. So there are books, there are movies, there are docs. Um, Obviously, I can't do all of it. But if you're really interested in learning more about the Manson family, I would like to recommend up top a very popular podcast that's out there hosted by Karina Longworth. It's called You Must Remember This. It's about old Hollywood and stuff. She does a 12 episode arc on the Manson family that is very well researched. She does do voices and have people do voices, which is a little corny. But overall, I really, really like it and recommend it. And it's very well done and tells you like all the intricate details. But for now, let me give you the Cliff's Notes version of it, baby. So let's start out with Charles Manson, who is our Cole character, obviously, like a father of a street gang. He is, um, unlike the killer in this week's episode, he is um, a notorious criminal who actually never murdered anyone. I don't know if people that we know of. There, there is one person that they think that Charles Manson maybe had a hand in murdering, but in the actual Manson family murders that you hear about, he didn't actually lay a finger on any of the victims. And uh, like, unlike Cole, instead, like he's a swap of Cole instead of like him going out and doing all the murdering. Manson convinced all his followers to do his dirty work, which many of them did happily for years and years. So Charles Manson was a man who, to be honest, like we talk about the cycle of violence all the time, barely had a chance. He was born to a teenage mom. She was a heavy drinker who was in and out of prison. His father was a con artist who Charles never really knew, who kind of bounced the second that he found out that Charles was even in the womb. And um, Charles started committing crimes at a very young age. And at the age of 15, he was sent to the Indiana Boys School where he endured a lot of sexual assault and abuse. And then many times he was caught repeating that abuse, like like in, in his places that he was incarcerated, he would be caught like raping other, you know, attendees of these places. So after like several escape attempts, numerous transfers to other juvenile centers, um, he was ultimately transferred to the Ohio Federal Reformatory in 1952. And he was like 17 or 18 then. So basically, he spends a lot of his life in and out of incarceration, basically half of his life. And um, I unfortunately see while I'm doing this research that he was a very his first wife was named Rosalie, which is Rosie's name. And I don't love the connection, but thought I would bring it up. Well, um, it's also I'm curious if he was always just bad, 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 or if these years and in incarceration well it's funny because like later his mother would say oh he was doted on all the women in my life would like dote on him he had no reason to turn like that it's like yeah but you were he she had multiple 
partners and what like that were in and out she was in and out of jail she was a heavy drinker like it seemed like he did not have like the best home life um and then especially going to a school where they were you know or a performatory place where they were kind of abusing him but anyway he gets out of a prison stint in 1967 and he ends up in the bay area like san francisco berkeley and this is the summer of 67 which happens to be it's like they talk about this a lot in the in the podcast that i mentioned like it's all kind of a perfect storm it's like charles manson came to this area of San Francisco called hate Ashbury. He came there right at the time of the summer of love. And this is like when there's all these hippies, everyone's doing drugs, free love. They're protesting the war. It's like very, if you're going to San Francisco flowers in the hair thing, like, so everyone's like doing LSD. And this is like the perfect time for sort of a cult leader to rise up, you know, cause people are looking for answers. They're looking for something different. They want someone to make them feel safe in a world that's very uncertain. So Manson tries um, LSD for the first time, becomes fully immersed in this whole movement. And then he starts preaching his own philosophy, which according to my research is a combo of a stranger in a strange land, which is a sci-fi book, the Bible, Scientology, Dale Carnegie and the Beatles. I think I just thought this was like a very funny salad of things to base your religion and philosophy on. I think we should all come up with what we what five things we would base our theories (laughs) and religions on. Oh, my God. That's so good. That's so good. We'll do that in our stories. We'll be like, we start a cult. What are the five tenets? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, like I said, people are fucked up. They're looking for answers. And Manson jumped on that. So he meets a librarian named Mary Brunner in a Berkeley area and he moves in with her and pretty soon 18 women are living with them. So Mary, you know, I guess is she is considered like a mother type figure at first. Like they called her mother, Mary, all these other things. And she did eventually have a child with Manson. So, you know, she's considered for a while his, you know, his Virgin Mary, but not a virgin. So by the end of 1968, he's got about 20 devoted followers. And keep in mind, he's in, he's on parole this entire time. Like he's got a parole officer and he's just fully building a cult while he's on parole. And um, the main Manson family members were uh, Charles Tex Watson, who was a uh, musician and former actor, Bobby Beausoleil, who was a former musician and porn actor, Mary Brunner, his baby mama, and then a bunch of women named Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, Patricia Krenwinkel, Le- Leslie Van Houten, and Lynette Squeaky Frome. These are, there, there are more, there are others, but these are like the main players. I like Squeaky. Yeah, Squeaky is um, iconic. Um, she, a, a lot of these women too, a lot like, maybe not Park Avenue level, but a lot of them are from middle-class homes. They just kind of wanted something different. Like they didn't want their like white bread lives, you know? And boy, did they get what they asked for when they met up with Charles Manson. So um, the Manson family would live communally and like wherever they could. And they would uh, take LSD and basically hang on every word of Manson's. And he did not have the same philosophy as Cole about not fucking your followers. He was absolutely fucking all of them. And um, eventually they moved. Did to you watch Search Party? Do you, as you watch Search Party? I do watch it, but I haven't watched the final season yet. Got it. I know that this is a, this is a thing that happens, right? She starts a cult basically. Well, yeah, I guess I don't think this will ruin it for you, but I'm sorry if I do. And I'm a terrible friend, <laughs> but she, you know, she is this leader of a cult, but all the follow, like they want to fuck her and she's just open to fucking all of them. <laughs> and you've never, I've never really seen a female cult leader 
free love moment and it was yeah. cool seeing a female cult moment and everyone wanting to fuck her i don't i liked it yeah 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 there have been female cult leaders but yeah i don't know if the sexual thing was always part of it the way it always is with male cult leaders you know yeah so eventually the Manson family moves to Spawn Ranch, which is like this rundown movie ranch where they used to shoot Westerns and stuff. And it's just north of L.A. And I mapped it and it's only 35 minutes from my house, which means it's like 35 minutes from your house. So we don't live that far from Spawn Ranch. And if you saw the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, the Tarantino movie that came out a couple of years ago, this is uh, they depict this ranch in the movie. It's like when Brad Pitt's character picks up Margaret Qualley. She's playing one of the Manson girls and he drops her at Spawn Ranch. Um, so basically the guy who owns Spawn Ranch is just terrified of Charles Manson. So they just bully their way onto this property and kind of take it over. It's really wild. And uh, but I think also the Manson girls took care of that guy like they would cook for him and like help him because he was like an old man. So they're all shacking up there. And eventually this like sort of free love hippie commune shifts into a full doomsday cult. Uh, Manson is obsessed with the idea that there's going to be a race war between black and white people. I was about to say, oh, I didn't know he was racist. And then I remembered he did have a swastika forehead tattoo. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Like he he basically could feel the rising tensions of, you know, racial inequality. But he was also a white supremacist and was like uh, he told his followers that black people would basically rise up and kill all the white people. But then they'd be too dumb to survive and would need a white man to lead them. So it's like, wow. Charles Manson, among everything else, you also have a white savior complex. Wild. <laughs> like, really? I can't believe. Um, so he called his race war Helter Skelter, which is oh. something he took from a Beatles song. So the Hel Helter Skelter is the race war. And that's where he got from. He got that from a Beatles song. But I, I think that the Beatles were talking about like a theme park ride called Helter Skelter and using that to symbolize the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. And um, I don't think they were intending that Charles Manson would warp that metaphor like that. But um, basically, he's acting like he's this prophet who's trying to, you know, help his followers through the race war. But he's also just straight up a white supremacist misogynist who desperately wanted to be famous and adored. Like, because I forgot to mention earlier that Manson is an aspiring singer songwriter. So that's like a huge part of the story is that he writes his own music and like wants to be a famous musician. So um, I never knew until all, all of this part until I uh, listened to that podcast. Um, but I rediscovered it in my research for this. So Charles Manson very by chance met one of the beach boys, Dennis Wilson. Um, when Wilson picked up two of the Manson girls while they were hitchhiking. Uh, so Wilson and these Manson girls ended up hanging out, doing drugs, listening to music and having group sex until everybody got gonorrhea, which always <laughs> fucks up a party. And, um, but apparently Dennis and Charlie like really hit it off. And so the whole family moved in with him for a while. And like Whoa. the family would like drive his Rolls Royce around town. So like these, this full street family would just be like, you know, bye, we're going to go dumpster dive in a Rolls Royce, which is crazy. And so um, Charles basically was also trying to get Dennis to get him into the music business, but shit went south like very quickly. Um, Manson did write a song called Cease to Exist, which the Beach Boys ended up recording a version of, but they changed some lyrics and they renamed it Never Learn Not to Love. And the song is only credited to Dennis Wilson and as a writer, but it did come out on a Beach Boys album. And then later after that happened, Wilson found a bullet in his bed. 
And Manson said way after the fact, quote, I gave him a bullet because he changed the words to my song. Yikes. So this friendship lasted a couple of months. And in that time, Dennis introduced Manson to a music producer named Terry Melcher. And he's very important later. And he is also Doris Day's son. Very Hollywood. All of this is like Charles Manson was just like much more connected to Hollywood than I think we know. And that's what Karina's podcast really hits on. So August 8th, 1969, Charles Manson tells Tex Watson to take Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel to Terry Melcher's home at 10050 CLO Drive in Los Angeles and to kill everyone there. So what they didn't realize was that Terry Melcher had left the house and had rented it to the director and alleged rapist Roman Polanski and his wife, actress Sharon Tate, who was played by um, Margot Robbie in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, who was eight and a half months pregnant. So Polanski is out of town shooting a movie and Tate is home with friends uh, one of them being Jay Sebring, who was a, he has a very interesting story. He's like a celebrity hairstylist who actually at one point dated Sharon Tate, but then they just became best friends. And he invented like male grooming. Like he basically was like one of the first guys, like he gave Jim Morrison his iconic hair look. Like he had all of these um, celebrity clients and was just kind of one of the first person to be like, no, no, we can like work just as hard on men, men's hair as we do on women's hair, you know? So I thought, I think he has kind of an interesting, uh, life. And then another person who was there is Abigail Folger, the 26 year old heiress to the Folger's coffee fortune. And then her boyfriend, whose name is Wojciech Frykowski and was a friend of Polanski's. So when the Manson family members entered the property, a guy named Steve Parent was leaving the property and he was there literally to see the guy who lived in the guest house. He wasn't even part of the main house activity. And he was, I think, there to buy a clock or something from my research. It was hard to say whether he was friends with the guy or just there for a quick transaction. And he like begged for his life, but Tex Watson shot him four times. And the guy was just wrong place, wrong time. Like he was just leaving the house and it was well, like, seems like everyone timing. was wrong place, wrong time. Right. But this guy was like, he's not part of the Hollywood elite. He's not part of this message killing. He's like a guy trying to buy a clock. And if he had left 20 minutes earlier, he'd be alive. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's just his story is kind of like crazy. So basically the Manson family members enter the home. They make all four of the guests. That's Jay, Sharon, Abigail and uh, Wojciech, they make them huddle together in the living room. Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring, her best friend, were tied together with ropes around their necks. And Sebring was trying to be like, yo, be gentle with her. She's eight and a half months pregnant. And Watson shot him. And then Folger was taken momentarily to a back bedroom to get her purse. And she gave the murderer $70. And then Watson, after that, stabbed Sebring seven times. Um, Wojciech Frykowski found his way to the front door and out onto the porch, but Watson caught up with him, struck him over the head with the gun multiple times and stabbed him repeatedly and then shot him twice. So horribly violent murders. Um, Folger escaped from Krenwinkel. Like a lot of times they would have like the women do the women and the men do the men. And like a lot of times the women like kind of honestly fuck it up and people escape. But so Folger <laughs> escaped from Krenwinkel, fled out of a bedroom door to the pool area, but Krenwinkel caught her on the front lawn and tackled her and stabbed her. And then Watson helped finish her off. And she had a total of 28 stab wounds, like horrible. Um, 
Wojciech Farkowski struggled across the lawn, but Watson continues to stab him and killed him. And he had 51 stab wounds, but had also been struck 13 times on the head with the butt of the gun. Ugh. And then in the house, Tate pleaded to be allowed to live long enough to give birth and offered herself as a hostage in an attempt to save the life of her unborn child. But both Susan Atkins and Tex Watson stabbed Tate 16 times, killing her. Horrible. Ugh, so horrible. Um, then on their way out, Atkins wrote the word pig with Tate's blood on the front door. After this happens, basically, and what I found out in this thing is Terry Melcher, who owned the house at the time, was dating Candace Bergen, a.k.a. Murphy Brown. And so she basically freaked out when she heard this happened and was like, oh, my God, this could have been me. Like they were coming to kill us. You know, it's a weird tie in that I didn't know about. So and they were going to kill him because he changed lyrics to a song. No, 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 no. What did this guy do? They basically, this guy wouldn't give him wouldn't give him a record contract That's like they had okay. met. But like he wouldn't he, w he wasn't interested in, in Charles Manson's like songs or anything. And so I think that essentially i'll get to why this happened in a little bit but i think what terry melcher represented to him was like oh you're doris day's son you're a big music producer like you're the epitome of hollywood what like essentially shit he wanted but couldn't get well that's so the thing like, it's like you're bad because of these things but also i want to be that yeah exactly like he he seriously coveted everything that this guy had so i think he was like oh go to the house and kill them but there is a reason for these crimes that we'll get to in a, in a, a little bit later. And then I wonder why they didn't turn around. Like, do you, they, do you think the murderers, physical murderers knew this was a different group of people and didn't care yeah. or thought it was the right people they were killing? I think they were just like, Charles told us to come here and kill everyone. We're just going to kill everyone. Like, I don't oh know that they God. showed photos of who they were or anything like Terry and whoever it was, but like, you know, they were just like, Oh, we're supposed to enter this house and kill everyone. That's what we're doing. Like they're brainwashed to a, extent you know yeah so the next night it's so crazy when you see movies or docs about this like just how slow the police work works because it's there's no cell phones there's no like ways to track a lot of people you know so this case goes fully unsolved for a day and the next night um this same um, band of people plus leslie van houten and steve clem grogan and manson go to the house of leno and rosemary my mom's name La Bianca in Los Feliz. And this is famously the house that I just went to. If you listen to the podcast, I talked about how a few months ago I went to this house. They went to their house. This is just a couple who lives in Los Feliz in this beautiful house. And they entered through an unlocked back door, bound the couple, covered their head with pillowcases. Then Manson left. And then he sent Krenwinkel and Van Hooten, two women, into the house. And Watson sent the women to handle Rosemary while he stabbed Leno, the husband, with a bayonet. And then when Watson discovered that Rosemary was like had kind of gotten away and was swinging a lamp at the women, he stabbed her with the bayonet, too, and then returned to attacking Leno, who he stabbed 12 times. So they were just viciously stabbed. And um, then Krenwinkel wrote rise and death to pigs on the walls and helter skelter. But she spelled it wrong. She spelled it H-E-A-L-T-E-R, like helter skelter. To kill and so. not even know the spelling of your I mean, lord. I just like, I know. don't get it. Yeah. They wrote this stuff on like the refrigerator and like the walls and stuff in La Bianca's blood. So it's um, really horrific. So those are the Manson murders that we talk about. This two night murder spree, one involving these five victims at this mansion in Benedict Canyon and the other involving this couple in Los Feliz. So 
A couple of weeks before the murders, another Manson member named Bobby Beausoleil, I like love his name. I just love saying it. Um, and it means beautiful son in French, just a funny name. Uh, Bobby Beausoleil tried to collect money from a guy named Gary Hinman on Manson's orders. Okay. They held Gary Hinman for two days, but he was uncooperative, probably had no money. They were all like delusional and on drugs. And so Bobby Beausoleil stabbed him to death and then wrote political piggy on the wall with blood. They also wrote a Black Panther symbol on the wall to try to implicate the Black Panthers. So Bobby Beausoleil was arrested for this murder on August 6th, two days before the Manson family murders. So it is widely believed that the reason that Manson set the whole uh, plan into action was to make it seem like Gary Hinman's killer was still out there. Like, oh, you got the wrong guy. There's a serial killer out there killing all these people and putting piggy on the walls in blood and all this stuff. So that's essentially like uh, many people now have accepted that that's why Manson did these murders to try to get Bobby Beausoleil cleared of these charges. Even though it's like there's fingerprints, there's other evidence that he was there and did this, you know, but they're like crazy. So essentially, as you can imagine, the Manson murders created a nationwide sensation. People in Los Angeles were terrified. They were out buying guns, getting security, like hiring security teams, burglar alarms, et cetera. Um, I read this one Vox article by Aja Romano where she said, they upended ideas of safety, security, and innocence and effectively sounded the death knell of 60s counterculture, ushering in a new decade of darkly psychosexual conspiracy-laced cultural exploration of America's seedy underbelly. The ritualistic nature of the killing set the stage for the rise of satanic panic, a phenomenon that never fully went away. End quote. And if you know, I love talking about the satanic panic, the uh, podcast I listen to. Um, you're wrong about one of the hosts of that podcast is writing a book about it and I'm dying to read it because I think that the satanic panic led to so much of the 80s crime that we had, uh, the 80s paranoia that we had and stuff like that, not the crime the paranoia about crime, like thinking everything has to do with a satanic cult and kids drawing blood from each other and shit like that. So basically the LAPD didn't think that the Tate and LaBianca murders were related, which seems like too stupid to be believed. Like, I mean, we love to talk about how cops fuck up, but this seems like epically so dumb. Um, so they didn't connect them initially. They actually arrested the Manson family a little bit later on a totally different charge for like stealing cars and turning them into dune buggies or something. And they didn't realize they had like all the murderers of this huge, uh, like of this huge case right in front of them. So finally, this all happened in August. Finally, I think in December, the whole gang was eventually arrested and faced trial. The trial was a full shit show. Like Manson tried to represent himself. He also came to court with an X carved into his forehead. He tried to attack the judge. He shaved his head and trimmed his beard into a fork and told the press, I'm the devil and the devil always has a bald head. There's just a lot of fuckery going on with this trial. And then um, a bunch of ladies of the Manson family ladies also ended up doing carving the X into their heads as well and shaving their heads. So and Manson, as you mentioned, Lisa did turn the X into a swastika later. So it's like he needed a new look for spring and he just was like, mm, this X could easily be a swastika. And there we go. So everyone in the Manson family was found guilty and sentenced to death. But in 1972, their sentences were all commuted to life in prison when California got rid of the death penalty. And into the 70s, the Manson family members continued to kill people. Squeaky Frome, 
attempted to assassinate President Gerald Ford, who sh um, and she later escaped prison in an attempt to see Manson when he had testicular cancer, but she was caught. And you know what? That crazy bitch got parole in 2009. And I said to myself, I'd love to know what she's up to. And as I continued my research, I found out she became a friendly but reclusive real estate agent in upstate New York. And I smell a sitcom. I think <laughs> a former Manson girl just moving to like, you know, Hastings on Hudson and selling cute farmhouses. I want to see it. Um, anyway, Manson, you know, contrary to uh, popular belief, he's never been diagnosed with any kind of um, illness, mostly because he's refused to submit to a psychiatric evaluation. Well, yeah, that might have something to yeah. do with it. It's like not getting tested for COVID. Like yeah, I've never it's COVID. like I've never had COVID. <laughs> um yeah. So a lot of uh, psychiatrists and psychologists who examined him in his prison years, like disagreed about whether he was faking it or not. And one report from 1982 um, recommended that Manson be transferred out of a psychiatric ward, concluding that he was only a psychiatric curiosity or oddity. So I guess maybe he wasn't a psych ward. I thought he was just in regular jail. But anyway, Charles Manson died of a heart attack and complications from colon cancer on November 19th, 2017 at age 83. And that is the very abbreviated story of the Manson family murders. Are the rest of the people still in jail? They all got yeah, life. I, I actually remember people trying to Leslie Van Houten was up for parole recently and if I remember correctly, she did not get parole, but people were trying to say that she actually did a few things to try to stop the murders while they were happening. So, like, let's give her a break. And she did not. I mean, I think the reason that Squeaky got parole is because she didn't actually kill the president. She, it was an attempted and she wasn't part of the other Manson family murders. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. you know, and Susan Atkins, who seemed like she was one of the most active um, women, died in 2009 um, in jail. So, yeah. Um, none of them, I don't think ever got out. They're either dead or still in jail. Damn. I feel like Manson, I've saw or read something that in jail, he like kept making music. Like he was kind of fun in jail. Well, and he had like a wife when he died. I think we <laughs> married like as a pen pal, you know, like for some reason he was attracting people his whole life. Like people definitely said he was charismatic and, you know, they didn't really lean on that for this episode. Like, they more leaned on Cole being, I think, like just a protector, like a savage, like dad figure that would like, you know, kill people for you or whatever, but not like not the whole like, hey, baby, like there was a reason Manson, like a lot of people said that he was super charming and like could believe that he got these people to do these things for him. Yeah, we consider as a society charming to be a good characteristic, but very dangerous. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And it's like, if you guys are following him, like, why, do, why isn't he doing anything? He never does anything. He never gets his hands dirty. Well, yeah, they had to change the laws to be able to even charge him with something. Yeah. There was like a drug dealer that they think he had a, a hand in killing, but I don't know if that there's any proof of it. But um, yeah, that's the story. Stick with us for a riveting interview. <laughs> All right, everybody, this week, our guest is a legendary actor that you've seen portray iconic roles in everything from Desert Hearts to The Craft. But we have her on this week to talk about her role behind the camera as a very prolific director working on shows like Westworld, Lovecraft Country and Station Eleven. 
But we were thrilled to talk to her about her directing of several SVU episodes, including this week's episode, Streetwise. Please check out our chat with the accomplished and amazing Helen Shaver. You have like such an insanely accomplished career. I don't know how we're going to even start. I don't even know where to jump in, but well, um, I, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in before we get start. into SVU. I would love to bring up the craft. Um, oh, I yeah. watch it <laughs> one or two times a year. I, uh, what an amazing part. I love <laughs> when they get the cash and the condo and such a cult hit. Did you know it was going to be something that lived in all of our hearts and scared us for decades? I didn't know that part, but I knew that I, I, I met I met Andrew, the director, and he was like, well, you know, we have this role. And, the, and I just went, OK, this is cool. I, I want to play this, you know, white trash trailer park woman. you got to make me a wig so that I have roots because <laughs> she <laughs> she she thinks of herself as Meg Ryan and she's got a little Meg Ryan haircut but she bleaches it out but then she you know passes out too many times and um <laughs> my son was uh, uh our son was I think about five when I did it and you know he would come to visit me on the set and he, he when he when he would come to that set which I only did once he came to that set and he saw me with all this you know crazy eye makeup in the studio <laughs> and he was like mama take it off take it off he just didn't he didn't want anything to do with it but i loved her i loved her and we improvised that whole scene around the um uh the jukebox uh it was a, you know it was a rehearsed improv but it began it wasn't scripted it was a and so it began as an improvisation and then we you know we sort of set it and uh, so that we could film it i lo- i loved her I thought she was fabulous, that woman. She so was, and cool. the wardrobe was so good, like super tight leggings. Um, oh, yes. It's funny when I look back. I, I don't spend a lot of time looking back at my career or anything like that, but I, uh, or my life, I sort of am very much here in the present. But on the occasions that I do, uh, I look back at that and I think, oh, yeah, well, I got to be Fruza Balk's mother. I know that is very <laughs> cool. <laughs> In the moment, there is a great truth in that relationship. And it's pretty neat. Lots of lifetimes without having to die and change bodies, (laughs) which I think is actually one of the cool things about acting. Because actually, when you act, you have to investigate all the lessons in column A and all the lessons in column B that that character has to learn. And then when that character is finished with whatever happens to them, you aren't (laughs) and so you get to go forward in your life having collected that information Uh, we saw this while doing research you know you were acting for a long time and it said martin scorsese is the person that said you should direct yeah Um, can you maybe give us that tidbit and is and did you have ever want to do it beforehand and yeah i'd love to hear about the switch from the moment i began acting on film uh, when I would read a script, I if it, if it, if it moved me, if it caught me, I would see the movie. I would see the movie that I was making in my head, right? And I've always loved the frame, the power of the frame. You know how you can be inside a moment and also up in the corner looking and seeing yourself there. You know that. You know that thing. I mean, yeah. I'm not even. I'm not talking about the drug induced times, <laughs> but I'm talking about just life, right? <laughs> um, you know what I mean? There's, there's there's the subjective and the objective experience. So I was always making movies in my head, 
Yeah. So I had done, I'd done uh, amazing stories with Marty. And then about a year later, he called me and asked me to come down and meet Paul Newman. And, and he kept saying, you know, this is just a small role. I'm going, you know, do you want to come to New York and meet Paul? And I'm like, Marty, I'll come to New York and do the dishes for you. You know, like he's Martin Scorsese, right? One of the greatest directors in the world. I really like the man. And then cut to, I think it was like 1991. I was I was opposite Alan Alda on Broadway, originating uh, Jake's Women. And he invited me for dinner. And they had had the table laid in, in, in a very formal way. And we were sitting, having this conversation. And he was talking about a film and... I can't remember which one. And I made a comment about it. And uh, he said, huh, maybe you should direct. That's that's yeah. And, and I'm like, oh, yeah, how am I going to do that? And it's not like I'm 25 and I can steal my mother's credit cards. Not that my mother ever had them because we were working <laughs> poor. But anyway, the, the, you know, I was very adult with mortgages and kid and husband. And, you know, it's not not an easy thing to suddenly go, OK, I'm going to go make my own film. But that 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 really enlivened uh, the concept in me. And then in '95, uh, I was meeting with Connie Tavell, who went on to be, become my manager. And she, the only way she said that she would manage me is if I could tell her what I wanted. And you know, I'm a nice Canadian girl, and it's not <laughs> polite to want. And oh, I want to work with nice people, good people, and good. She's like, "Yeah, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want?" And finally, I heard myself say, "I want to direct." And she said, okay, now we got a five-year plan. Lo and behold, five years later, we were picking up a, an Emmy for um, Summer's End, which is a, the first feature like thing I directed for Showtime, starring James Earl Jones. And, and uh, yeah, so we just went along, and I accepted uh, Poltergeist, the, the, the series. It was Showtime. They came to me. I read it. I was like, nah, I don't want to do some closed thing, flowing, throwing salt at ghosts. You know, I mean, really, I don't think that's what I want to do. And Connie said, OK, but they produce a lot of films, like about 50 films a year in all kinds of budget ranges. And Jerry Offsay is really um, aware of diversity and, uh, you know, which is before anybody was talking about diversity. Trust me, in the 90s. <laughs> nobody was looking for a female director that was not happening <laughs> and uh uh so anyway she she said if I can leverage directing out of this will you do it and I said yep and so she went and came back a few hours later and guaranteed me payment for 44 episodes the first two years if I showed up as an actor and and an outer limits and a poltergeist to direct in the first year and that's where I started and then when you were like with the actual like directorial skills, did you just learn those having been on so many sets and acting? Or is it sort of like a learn as you go like kind of thing? Yeah, I, well, like I love I mean, I think the process of filmmaking is so phenomenal. The fact that a group of uh, human beings who don't know each other oftentimes come together and can actually all put their attention and their skills with direction to focus on a moment, a minute, two minutes. I have always loved that. And so I was never sitting in my dressing room saying, call me when you're ready for my close-up. I was like, <laughs> you know, I'd be, I'd be down there going, okay, why are you doing that shot? You know, can I look through the camera? I mean, this was all before there was videos yeah. on set and then all of that, you know, cause everything was film and, you know, so it's all changed so much because I come from the olden days. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's so cool though. That's like, I mean, I just think that's like a fascinating like origin story like <laughs> for a female director. That's really, it's really awesome. And then how did you come to SVU? Did you watch the show beforehand? Did you know anybody on there or what was the SVU connection? Well, of course I'd watched SVU and I'd watched the mothership. I had done quite a few judging Amy's and, and in the sixth year, uh, Amy asked me to be a producer director there. So I'd done 22 episodes, you know, producing and directing whatever, five of them or whatever it was. So we were going along and, and I started, you know, just like acting, people want to, particularly with women, I think people want to uh, put you in a little box, right? And so where I'd done outer many outer limits and and some sci-fi stuff now that I was on network I was doing judging Amy and people thought oh well she's really good and you know with the kitchen dramas <laughs> and the women's stories and uh so then I sort of pressed out and just done a bunch of action stuff so they go okay oh oh she can do a car chase and a shootout and a fall off a hill and and off an apartment building oh right right all of that <laughs> stuff oh and sex she can do sex oh yeah uh, and um ted kotchev who is a great filmmaker and who i who hadn't hired me when i auditioned for him when i was a young actor but anyway <laughs> his his loss no i know not at all ted is a great 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 man a great director um, he was the sort of father of, he was the executive producer there and he would, was very involved with Neil Bear in choosing directors and he wanted a female director and was talking to Mimi, a leader who I, I'd never worked with, but whatever she recommended me. And then the call came to the agent and, uh, off I went and I was very much welcomed into that the bosom of that that show and streetwise is the first one that i did i think yeah a favorite yeah and it's a it's a hot episode it's, it's good <laughs> I, I was i watched it last night because i thought i haven't seen that for a long long time it's pretty good yeah no <laughs> yes. it's a great episode for episodic television and directing how early in the process do you join for the episode are you involved with casting and wardrobe um do you come in after like what's the journey uh when you join a show for an episode when you're coming in as a sort of journeyman actually uh, director on an episode the, of course the, the standing cast is all cast the standing locations are all done you get a script on, on your first day, maybe the, the day before you travel, maybe, so that you've actually read it before you get there. But, um, you know, the, every every show has has a, a visual signature, but like, um, and sort of some of them have kind of rules, you know, like where they don't want to do this, they don't want to do that. But what I've found is it's the same as acting, really, or any kind of creative relationship. If I can hear you, and I understand what it is you need, for, you know, in order to fulfill what you need. And I give you that. Then you are free to hear me. Um, the DP on SVU and I got on like a house on fire. And he was he was <laughs> quick and graceful and, and we had fun. And he was excited by the like when I was watching it last night, I was I was I mean, I have that camera moving a lot. And there's a lot of shots that are you know, without a cut in them that are kind of wonderful evolving masters where, where the stuff happens in the frame and, you know, so you're not sitting there going ping pong back and forth with talking heads, you know, mm -hmm. you know, very 
sort of old school network formula. Not ever my style, really. (laughs) (laughs) And how is it filming in New York, just in the streets? Do they do people interrupt often when iced tea's around? Um, How is yeah. Well, it's New York is New York, right? I love yeah. New York. Uh, and, and and New York is such a great place because really, unless you stick somebody flat against a boring wall and shoot into the wall, you <laughs> we would like, why are you doing that? But other than that, any any way you look is so full and majestic and dirty and noisy and colorful and alive and so textured and layered. And uh, there's really good production designer on that. So I love I love shooting in New York. I, I, I've done a lot in New York because I did all those SVUs. And then I did a bunch of person of interest. And there's been other stuff. Oh, Sneaky Pete. And I don't know. I've done a bunch of stuff in New York. I like New York. We love New York. We're, we're former New Yorkers. I live on one of the Gulf Islands um, up in the Pacific Northwest. So, I, you know, that's that's what serves my soul and nature when I am not with a camera crew. <laughs> well, do you know Tom Scarrett? He's over there. He's been on our podcast and he lives up there also. And he said, he speaks very similarly to you of, of it. Like that the area really like, is like, he's emotionally very connected to it. And yeah. Loves it. Yeah. Well, I, like Poltergeist was shot in Vancouver. So that, that sort of, uh, you know, and it's such a funny thing because when you're in LA, I don't know what it's like now. Cause I don't live there, but Back in the day, it had such a gravitational pull that it felt like if you went north of Santa Barbara or east of Palm Springs, you were going to fall off the face of the earth and (laughs) never be seen again. And, you know, and but Poltergeist shot in Vancouver. So and our son was like seven then. So I I brought him with me and he went to school there and we got a house there and, and and Steve would go back and forth. And and then by the time those four years were over, we just uh, decided that. Um, he was, you know, he, he was now 11 going on 12 and there's no way that we wanted to drag him out of there and take him back to LA and throw, you know, because, you know, it's still a place where you can actually, a kid can actually walk to school. You don't have to just make play dates, drive him around and hand them the keys to the Mercedes when they turn 16, you know, and say, I wonder why they're doing what they're doing. (laughs) Are you going to say cocaine? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, we all know when, you know, there's lots of reasons for that in different times of your life, I suppose, but (laughs) not at 16. Thank you very much. (laughs) I got a lot of work to do if I'm going to hand my kids keys to a Mercedes. (laughs) (laughs) No, Rosie's going to want a Jeep. She doesn't need a Mercedes. (laughs) Well, and I only reference that because you end up sending, well, we ended up sending him, you know, to a, a private school, a lovely private school. But then all of a sudden your kids in school with just the children of overachievers and you kind of go, well, where's the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker yeah. and, and that, <laughs> those kids, because that kid might be Picasso, the, you know, the butcher's kid. Right. Yeah. And uh, anyway, did your son end up getting into the business? My son is in the business. So my, our, my husband, his father is a uh, key grip. And he's also uh, a bit of an inventor. And he he and his four, three partners received an Academy Award for Scientific and Technical Achievement about ooh, maybe seven years ago, five years ago, something like that, uh, for uh, uh, air walls, which are um, uh, modular, inflatable, exterior visual effects walls that have <laughs> a, a revelationary wow. stuff. So, so ladies, gentlemen... When considering a mate, do not 
It's, you know, I, I've talked to young women and, oh, you know, but I really love him, but he's, you know, he's trying to be a writer, but he's just really a waiter. And, and, I, and, and my career is doing so well. And you're like, you know what? I married a key grip. He got the Academy Award so far. I mean, I got to get one too. <laughs> he beat you to the Oscar. <laughs> That's so funny. That's great. And so your son, your son got into the biz too. Actually, the reason I met the people on Person of Interest was because he was a PA on that. Uh, I knew none of those people. And uh, I was producing, directing a thing in Toronto that was very hard. And I went down for a long weekend, got there, and he was still working. So I had the car take me to the stage, walked in, and it was it was really neat to walk into a stage that wasn't Steve, my husband's set, wasn't my set watching his Mac set. And um, anyway, and, and, it, and it, was, it was so great because, you know, you want for your kid that the world gets to see them the way you do in all that wholeness, you know? And, um, and so there we are. And, and as I went around, I knew some of the crew and, you know, just cause I've been around for so long and people would say, Oh, Max, he's so, and they like describe him. And, and I just, I'll tell you, by the time I'd been there for about a half hour, you couldn't, you could have taken every cent I'd ever earned, every award <laughs> I'd ever won, every kudo from a critic, piled them in the middle, and it would have been put to what I felt Aww. like. I was just like, oh my God, he is, he is himself in the world, you know, That's which so I don't know. Cool. Yeah. Um, well, in this episode, speaking of children, in this episode, there's, you know, the girl, little Josie. And I, I'm trying to think if there were other kids in other episodes you did. But in general, how is it working with children on a set and directing children? You know, uh, that that little girl in Streetwise was phenomenal. She was yes, she was she was incredible. And I, I watching that scene last night, that those scenes with her when they're with the food and all of that, which is so on the edge of being cruel. Um, I find that children can be great. Well, I've always had good experiences. I I relate to them as I re- as a person, not as a child. I speak directly to them. I'm present. They're more than willing to be present if you are. And um yeah, she was she was awesome. I mean, there I've worked with like on, on, on judging Amy. There would be kids because she was a, she. There were a lot of kids in that because she was a family judge, and so you would have these stories that centered on kids a lot when they're really little and they don't know. Like in Maid, right? I did Maid, and there Riley was who was four and she was playing three. And Margaret Qualley was a genius because she understood that a four-year-old doesn't have the concept of work. They only have the concept of play. And so, uh, you know, we made everything play for for Riley because she had to do 10 hours. And then with these other kids, it's just a matter of, I don't know, in a sense, I work with them the same way as I work with act, uh, adult actors. I make them safe. And I let them know that I've got their back. And then I ask them to show me themselves, you know, because the words and the costume and the circumstances of the, of the, of the piece takes care of all of that. And, and what makes a good performance into a great performance, child or adult, is whether the, the actor is willing 
to let you see their specific truth speaking through the mouthpiece of the character. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. I I like listening to you talk. It's a a great perspective. So um, I think you're the first director uh, that we've interviewed, except we interviewed Chad Lowe for his episode of SVU. And then his first directing job was SVU. But um, this is like a great perspective we don't get to hear often. So yeah very into it um and one of my favorite parts of this episode is may whitman's wardrobe i love her gutter punk vibe and like (laughs) the colorful dreads and i love that park avenue like chanel suit little haircut um (laughs) i just i loved i love the wardrobe so much yeah there's a great wardrobe woman on a designer on that on that show she kept it real because within all of that, it never went in, her work never went into fantasy, but she sure could capture a character in a moment. You know, mm-hmm. if you're wearing the wrong thing, it's like you're having a hard time convincing the audience of anything. Yeah. We talked to a lot of actors that have been on the show and a lot of them talk about, you know, how how it's a well-oiled machine and they come in and they feel like as opposed to other shows, when you come on to SVU, like people are pretty warm and like bring them into the fold for the week that they're there. Because at a lot of other shows, it's like you're in, you're out. We don't really want to get to know you, whatever. I was wondering if well, as and a director- these people have to cry. They have to, you yeah. know, horrible things have happened to their characters. It's also you got to be nice to these people yeah. like <laughs> doing such emotional work. But yeah. Well, I was wondering if if as a director, you feel the same way that you're kind of like coming in for the week or the two weeks and you're like, oh, am I, is it okay if I'm, you know, not, not like, you know, obviously after you did Streetwise, I'm sure every time you came back, they were all like, hell right. back. But like the first time you were there, was it like, oh, everybody knows each other and everybody knows what they're doing. And now I got to have to like slide into their world. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it, that's a real challenge for episodic directors. Cause you do, you walk into a world that has its own language, its own relationships, some of which you know and you don't know. And, you know, I I, I don't know about you, but uh, I, I think all, everybody wants to be liked and accepted and all of that stuff. We're <laughs> social animals, right? You know, so early in my directing, I would think, oh, you know, I'm going to go in there and do grand things, right? Because we all want to do grand things. But you really realize pretty quickly, at least I realized pretty quickly, if one respects what is, that then within that, and colors within the lines, actually there is as much creativity to coloring within the lines as there is in changing the lines, right? So it's, it's that, and the more secure one is, or the more secure I am in myself, the easier all of that becomes, because it becomes about the other people and about listening and hearing and acknowledging and and i mean i think that's one of the skills of leadership which is what everybody else is looking for in the director they want a leader but that doesn't mean a dictator that right. <laughs> that means a leader i mean i want you to want to do it yeah. right so if i recognize when the props guy takes the gun and he's looking through the frame and he goes to the bureau in the background and he sets that gun perfectly there and comes back and looks if i say hey man that's beautiful well done then i don't know that just reaps so many benefits outside of even streetwise and i can name the different episodes do you have a memory of a performance or a shot or an experience from svu that you really remember fondly or were very impressed by 
there's a sequence that I did where it's uh, the rape kit is being taken. Uh, Jennifer, oh, Jennifer Hewitt. Love Hewitt. Yeah. one of our top 10 episodes. Yeah. It's the best one. Behave. Yeah, I think that that's an amazing scene, and just uh, and I, th- I I think she I, I think she gave it a great performance in that. And you were asking about New York with her because she was just so much in the zeitgeist at that moment. I mean, there would be pro- paparazzi that would literally come up on the on the sidewalk in the middle of a scene, and 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 you're like, hey man, and they and they're like, this sidewalk is public property, and you're going. Yeah. <laughs> so that I loved um Chris Maloney in that one with Stephen Race where he puts himself in solitary. Solitary, yeah. Solitary. I think that's I think that's a really great sequence. Uh it was brilliant to do and and we had to do it backwards, right? Because we had to do it on and that was a trip, right? Because you know how SVU doesn't have a lot of silent moments. Right. No, it's it's it goes like this, right? And it's the pace and the dialogue is is what's driving a lot of stuff. And so in the script, you know, there's like two sentences about he's in this solitary confinement and he starts to lose his mind. And we're driving around in the scout van and and uh David Leclerc, uh the producer that was with was like, Well, you know, and I'm going and I'm saying, Well, we have to build this, we have to build the cell and and we're going to have to shoot this backwards and I, we need to schedule it for Monday so he can grow his whiskers over the weekend, not shave. And then we'll have to shoot it back. And he's going, yeah, well, how long, how long do you think this is going to be? And I said, oh, about two minutes. And he's like, no, it can't be too late. And then I, and then Ted Kotcheff's on the phone with me or I'm in his office or whatever. Because Ted's going, well, couldn't we just do it with dissolve? And I'm like, no, this is not about dissolves. This has to have tension. It has to have build. It has, he has to, we have to watch this guy lose his mind. And if we're not, not going to do it that way, then let's not do it at all. So it was a very, so, you know, stuff like that. Now I'd been there, I'd been there a number of times. In the, and so there was a great, you know, you, there could be creative fiction, there could be conversation and uh, quite easily. And everybody knew that in the end, it was all going to work out anyway. So I, I love that. There's many moments with Mariska, you know, I love that she's, she's directing now. I mean, I, I really like that episode with her where we, um, where we're looking for all the rape kits, uh, that whole thing. Well, that's what, and you mentioned this earlier, what's so great about SVU is like you came to the show knowing how to do action and romance and all these things. And that's what SVU is. It's comedy, it's drama, it's emotion, it's action. There's uh, so much in every episode to do. It's really neat. Do you remember doing the episode Smoked, which I think is the last episode you directed for SVU and is Maloney's final episode? Yes, I remember that. Yes. Iconic. <laughs> what was it like rapping Christopher? Uh, uh, well, I, they might not have known that he wasn't coming back the following season, they I did. guess. Yeah, I do, they did. I do believe that's why it was. Yeah, I, I, I do believe they they did or or they were in. Wow. Or they were in the, whatever it was, it was in the balance. So they did that so that that could happen, right? Right. Without it being uh, too cuckoo. So how was it on set for his final? Yeah. Did you get to say that's a series wrap on Christopher Maloney? (laughs) Somebody did. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was pretty great. I love it. Yeah. He, he, now he is for everything else, the writing, okay, all great. But truly in my experience of SVU, Marishka and Chris were such consummate 
dedicated actors. I mean, can you imagine 12 years into doing something and you still come in every day? Now they're 23 years into doing something. Yeah. I mean, like, seriously, longer than most marriages last for, for real, right? <laughs> and, and coming in every day prepared with a high bar of integrity, thoughtfulness, point of view, very, very impressive. And, and that, as well as everybody being welcoming to actors coming in, Great actors, deeply experienced. Like I directed Anne Margaret. I directed Brent Bletham. I directed Stephen Ray. I direct, you know, like these things. Anne Margaret, Anne Margaret. Oh my God, Anne Margaret. Literally, people would stand around and you'd see grown men getting all <laughs> restless, right? Anne Margaret. And she, she would call me, not every night, but quite often, you know, uh, I'd be getting into bed and, doing my thing at the end of the day and the phone would ring and it'd be Anne Margaret. And she'd go, you know, I was thinking about tomorrow's work and, and we, and I'm worried about this and how would, how does this, you know, and we would have this whole conversation, which is just that level, level of commitment and that level of working is what I love, you yeah. know, cause that's, that's where I'm at when you're doing it. That's what you're doing. It's nice seeing your passion for your work for sure. <laughs> And our first episode of this podcast was ep the episode Bully, which you directed. Right. Uh, yeah. Burton, which is uh, fantastic. Yeah, that was our inaugural episode. Oh, she, uh, Kate is so, isn't she something? She's so cool. Yeah. She she and I were on Broadway together. Then my only Broadway oh. thing in Jake's Women. She played his dead wife and I played his live wife. Oh, wow. Incredible. Well, you have uh, directed so many amazing episodes of the show. So I know you're busy. Now you do. Now you direct like, I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to belittle SVU in any way, but like you've directed Westworld and like the, the shows where every episode is like a movie, right? Like, yeah. I, I, I don't know. Are you uh, would you ever go back to an SVU episode if they had if they contacted you? Well, we've tried to we've we've tried to make that work, but the schedules have never been able to. Yeah. You know, there's there's lots of love and and yes yes there's that possibility <laughs> exists uh, you say and you're correct that these big shows are are each like a movie but you know i've i've never when people would say well i want to direct movies not television i i would i would very and still to this day do i would tell you i've never ever directed tv i've always made movies whether they're 43 minutes long mm. or whether they're two hours long because they're movies they're just it's just where they're shown. Oh my gosh, what a dream. She, I can't, this woman is so accomplished. It's like, oh, I have so much to do. Stressing well, me out. Not only, <laughs> well, no, that, that's definitely not the lesson she was trying to give. <laughs> but also this idea of she's been consistently working for decades and I wouldn't say she's famous. No, no. one really knows her. And it's this idea of like, not managing your goals and expectations, but realizing, is it about the attention or the work? Yeah. And it's really incredible to talk to most of our guests, honestly, all of our guests, but like to talk to someone that really is about the work mm -hmm. and doing it and creating this great life and having a cool husband and how she spoke about her son was so great. And it seems like the industry and people that work within it all know who she is. I bet if we were at a Vanity Fair Oscar party and we said Helen Shaver, people would know who she right. was yeah you know yeah so. and yeah she was super inspiring and because sometimes people try to insult you and be like i don't even know who you are and it's like that's fine 
Yeah. You don't need to know who I am. You probably know who like a few hundred people are. Like the level <laughs> yeah. of household name fame is very difficult, you know? Like, or people will talk to me after shows and be like, I mean, no offense, but I had no clue who you were. And it's like, it's weirder if you do, honestly. Yeah. Like, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm okay with you not knowing who I am and having a good time. Trust me. But um, that is like an insult of like, who care? And it's like, you don't get it. We get to do the work. Yeah. And that's where it all is exciting. You know what is annoying? Do you watch Watch What Happens Live? I, d- I dip in and out. So I watched the one with the girl from Ozark who's about to I be. Saw, I saw like 15 minutes of it. She was a bad interview. She seemed like nervous. It was like, why are you nervous to be talking to Whitney Rose? Like you're, you're an Emmy, a gold or an Emmy winning actress. And like, you know, you're so prolific. I thought she was amazing in that movie. The intern. I thought she was so good, even though that movie was like slow. The assistant, the assistant, assistant. sorry, sorry. The assistant, the assistant. Um, No, the previews for this new Shonda Rhimes thing, it looks incredible. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I read a whole. So I had already read about that. So she's going to be playing this. um, Anna Delvey. Anna Delvey. Yeah. This like fate. This woman. I did a dance. If you guys are wondering, I'm so excited for this movie. She's going to be playing Anna Delvey, who faked her way into New York society. And I I reread the article because I'd read it years ago and I reread it just to catch up, like refresh. And I was like, it's wild how how she did this. And I'm excited to see this girl's uh portrayal but i think maybe watch what happens live is like too maybe she's so loved funny andy but all i needed is something to listen to while i played tetris and text twist i'm back in text twist wordle got me hooked <laughs> did you get the wordle today barely skin well, five out of six it's tough but i don't mind like i know there's a point of pride to get it sooner than later but that doesn't affect me i'm at 100 percent solve rate and Same. that's honestly all i care about yeah i, I like that i'm at 100 percent solve i do like it when i get like a three or a two you know oh of course but sometimes <laughs> it's like i don't just do a do like that's not what that's not fun for me and so one day i did start with the word gassed and like <laughs> That was tough. <laughs> like it's, it was, none of them worked. It was like, why did you? So it's like, it, it depends on the word you use. You're, you can't be a fortune teller. I know that's, that's the thing. The first word is like a full guess, you know? Yeah. But it's really taken the, like us by storm dirt orcs. I thought maybe it would, it would lose its luster after a couple of weeks, but I'm still way into it. Like I get nervous if I think I've missed a day. Cause I don't want to break my streak. Yeah, or it's like um, if I, if I'm at three, I like go away for a little bit and then come oh, back. Oh, you let your mind like reset. That's not a bad idea. If I'm looking and looking and none of the letter, nothing is working yeah. for me. I walk away and then come back. If something doesn't a beautiful mind pop out to you, you just are like, I gotta take a step back. Yeah. Um, well, this okay. Makes wait. You want to so, go to Dave and Buster's? Oh, we should talk about that episode. You're well, right. what? Like, I mean, good, great episode. We've been wanting to do Streetwise forever. We, I was, it was so cool to talk to Helen. This episode, I feel like it's one of the ultimate white privilege episodes. Like this girl was like, had everything. It was just like it was too much pressure. So I went onto the streets and helped people murder. Like, it's well, that's just- what Portland is. I mean, I used to be friends with. Um, <laughs> Um, wow Kara that's that was the most so funny <laughs> that was so funny but that what I just said as a joke you're like that's the whole city of Portland <laughs> 
No, I used to be friends with like Burning Man festival type girls and like, you know, white girls with dreads. Not close, but I was into that for a little bit. And they were all, you know, they're all right. Oh, yeah. It's like the white girls um, with, they all have pit bulls and they're all on the street, but you know, they are a phone call away from a plane oh, ticket. I have a childhood friend who like had white girl with dreads, full freaking dumpster diving, living on the streets, like came to see me at a comedy show and had, was just missing an incisor and is, has a full trust fund. You know what I mean? So what is that? It's rejecting where you like that you have that privilege. You're like trying to reject the privilege. But I just think that's one thing. Like if you want to try to like live, live small and have a small carbon footprint and like not use your what maybe you consider ill gotten gains or like, you know, um, generational wealth, you know, like if you want to try to reject all that, that's one thing. This girl was just kind of like, oh, the SATs, the pressure. I just decided to go on the street and get involved. Like you could have walked away at any time. You could have you could have like you had resources to help these kids like and you just were like, I just let the dad of the family murder people. But, you know, I'm sure there's psychological stuff there, too. And but maybe she's was a murderer. Happened with the Manson family, too. Maybe she's a murderer. Maybe she's evil. Mm. We like totally kind of ran that off. It's just like. I mean, this is a TV show, but thinking about the day to day of living on the street is hard. It's like, where do you shower? Where are you using the bathroom? The food, like it is, it's a hard life. And I don't know why you would choose it. Yeah. Because you could also give your money away, live in a small apartment. Like, like you said, there's ways to like live, not like an Upper East Side person. Mm -hmm. But the moment the dad said, Helen, let's go. We're we got you a lawyer. She was happy to be included in their little rich in their little yeah. rich community as soon as she could slide a headband on she was in i didn't even realize the main character of the episode was named helen and so was the director that we uh it just hit me too just i wonder me. if that was oh. on purpose also i kept re-watching this episode and i was like oh we missed out on asking helen a lot about a lot of action shots <laughs> like because <laughs> like, she was so interesting in so many ways but the episode was just like incredibly directed and such good scenes yeah. um wait uh someone wrote to us it's not blood splatter it's, it's spatter. spatter yes and someone also wrote to us about a couple people wrote to us about saint monica in, in the last episode justice you were like well who's monica the saint it's the saint for the patron saint of people in bad marriages and with disappointing children so whoever wrote to us was like this is that seems definitely planned that that's what her school was whoa bad marriages and disappointing children i get there's a fucking saint for everything you christians are wild i didn't know that like there's a is there a saint for like an overcooked breakfast burrito like i don't understand like a saint for disappointing children wow i didn't know that that existed thank you so much did we learn yeah. anything else don't join a cult don't fuck a cult leader yeah don't murder in front of children if you murder to get respect it's not real respect if you're involved in some kind of organization a group and the leader is asking you to do stuff that he or she will not do themselves that's a red flag you know like yeah. you go out and do this this is part of your thing it's like okay are you gonna do it with us like you know what like what's your you know just keep an eye out for that yeah and if you have murderous tendencies don't do lsd maybe yeah is that yeah, a good one? Is that, yeah. is that a good tip? <laughs> Don't a forget to tip. wash your hands. Yeah. 
Um, okay. This, <laughs> I do. Well, love- don't forget to wash your hands leads right into what would sister. Back do? <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes whenever I'm like, wait, did this one suck? We do get a lot of compliments. They're like, you didn't yeah, suck. They're like, you were great. Yeah. So <laughs> thank you for indulging us. No, you're going to make us sick. Now that I know that you guys like listening to us, you've really opened up a bad, a bad <laughs> part of my heart and brain. It's not good. I can't have this much power. I'm like Jafar. I'm coming out in like full muscle red that you guys like to listen to us. <laughs> um, okay, let's hit up our WWSPD. What would Sister Peg do for the week? This is our weekly segment where we give you guys a organization, a website, a book, a link, something that helps you uh, flesh out what we talked about today, but also um, gives you the opportunity sometimes to donate. This week, actually, I'm just pointing you towards a book that um, it's a lot of places on the internet said that this book is also helped inspire this episode. So I thought if anyone was interested in it, it is called All God's Children, colon, Inside the Dark and Violent World of America's Street Families by Renee Denfeld. And we'll have the link to that in our show notes. And um, this is a book that recounts some of the tragedies and terrors experienced by youth that have joined street families. The author draws on material that's been gathered from a decade spent with these families to highlight the extremes that the estimated 500,000 young people have resorted to in order to find what the author calls a sense of belonging. So if you want to read more, the link is in our show notes. Um, Thank you so much, Kara. I obviously will not be reading this book, but um, hopefully (laughs) some of our listeners that are more studious uh, will be doing that. And our next, I can't believe I have to announce this next episode. Is it scourge, 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 scourge? Well, then why is there a no? We're watching Scourge, everyone, season two, episode 21. And for all those ASMR freaks, you can watch it on Peacock. (laughs) (laughs) Hulu and anywhere else. And thank you so much. You guys are uh, a really magical group of listeners. We should release a ringtone that's just Lisa saying Peacock over and over again. (laughs) And we want gifts. I mean, we want everything. We want so many stickers. I want to make that Twitter house thing. Like, I want, I'm like obsessed. I want everything. Uh, You guys are the best. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. messed up is an exactly right production if you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover shoot us an email at that's messed up pod at gmail.com follow the podcast on instagram at that's messed up pod and on twitter at messed up pod and follow us personally at kara clank and at glitter cheese as always please see our show notes for sources and more information thank you so much to our producer annalise nelson and to our mixing engineer ryo baum and to henry kapersky for our theme song and to Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thank you to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everyone at Exactly Right Media. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dun-dun!